Welcome to the podcast, Otra. Hell yeah, dude. Thank you so much for having me, man. Uh, um, so, curious. All right. So, what is your full name? Full name with the spelling and the pronunciation breakdown. It's going to be Otra. Okay. O-T-T-A-R-A. Middle name is Sacha. S-A-C-C-A. Last name is Pine. P-Y-N-E. Sacha. So, let me very break it down as confusingly right. as possible, I guess. So, first off, I have... My, my first name is Sanskrit. Actually, not Burmese. Okay. But my parents, I don't know, they wanted to give me some sort of very, very meaningful name. So it was, uh, it actually means, it's Sanskrit kind of Pali, and, and originally it means one who helps others cross over from difficulties. Oh, amazing. So I find it's perfectly fitting for my work. Sacha means truthful, also Sanskrit, which is a little bit more debatable. And then to make things extra confusing, I actually have my mom's last name rather than my dad's. Okay. So just a little background really quick. My dad's American, about as American as it gets, Kentucky, um, born and raised, but then, of course, German, Welsh ancestry. My mom, Myanmar, coming from, of course, Southeast Asia, they met actually growing up here in Bangkok. Um, but eventually, you know, later on down the road when I was born, their decision um, was sort of, for my name, was sort of impacted by the fact that in Burmese culture, I think it's one of the few in the world where we actually don't have last names. We don't trace lineage by last names there's really no kind of connection in that way which for me is very unique so when we came to naming me my parents were like oh well fuck it like if if it's a, you know if we have like a son then we'll give him you know, my mom's last name okay his daughter my dad's last name yeah, yeah so i mean obviously i mean you know son here so uh yeah i've got my mom's Do last you have any name. other siblings i've got three half siblings okay. so my parents um divorced when i was younger remarried so I've got my mom, my stepdad have one daughter, Gaia, who's 14, and then my dad and my mom, my stepmom have two daughters. Okay. Surrounded by girls, so yeah. 12 and no, sorry, geez, 13 and 11 now. Trying okay. to keep track of everyone. Yeah. yeah. So I've always been the big older brother. Oh, nice. Yeah. 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 Okay. So I see. The, I see what you're saying. Yeah. The, the right. male. You right. Know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like I've always been. I think when I was younger, there was sort of this like. I mean, I'm 12 years older than my than my oldest younger sister okay. so there is sort of this distance for me but at the same time now when i'm older i'm like oh man i'm like of course i was the difficult first child had to get all the tattoos the piercings and you know all this shit and now of course it's like just trying to make sure that i set a good example of course siblings and I, I think you i think you, your progress and everything <laughs> so far <laughs> has really you know spoken about that you know yeah, I, I like to joke my mom can't get too mad about the face tattoo now that i've i've worked in a top four top five best restaurant in the world <laughs> yeah, I remember when you got that, and then you 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 kind of had you got you got your head shaved the week the week before I think that came. Yeah, got the tat and made sure your hair grew back just in time that it kind of was there, but it wasn't. Yeah, dude, the the best is so I come down to my my mom is she's I mean I I think I'm slick she knows she's my mom <laughs> she's 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 seen me for 27 years and all my bullshit. But I come down to the kitchen and it's like first thing in the morning. I was like wearing like a bandana and she immediately looks at me and she's like, oh, nice to see you. We've been gone for two weeks. Why are you wearing a bandana? Do you have a head tattoo? Are you fucking kidding me? And I was like, it's 8 a.m. And I just got like three rapid fire questions. Like, and you're, you're, you're like, your braids like trying to work it out. And you're like, what what answer can I give right now? It's the meme where the chick and all the math is going on. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, like exactly that. I was like, how the hell did she figure this out? But yeah, so. I mean, she, she's your mom. She's going to know. Right. You know? Yeah, she, she knows. <laughs> so, all right. So you grew up where did you grow up and sort of what brought you to your current job? Like what, 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 what did you possibly do in your earlier life that kind of led you to this whole sommelier 
slash you've got a lot of projects in the work that just doesn't just make you a sommelier but i mean what's kind of brought you here like what was your earlier life in terms of work in terms of education how did you how did you fare in school were you like the popular kid in middle school and all that jazz or were you just the kid that you know kind of sat in the corner with his group of friends and it wasn't like you were popular not popular like what was your certain circumstance it was interesting for me so growing up real quick so born in cambridge massachusetts just, okay. just outside of boston um actually in the pretty sure the exact same hospital that the former thai king was born in oh um, interesting uh, yeah i was actually just driving past the embassy on Whitian. i was like i'm pretty sure it's the same hospital um, but yeah, so I was born in Cambridge. My, my mom, I come from a very, very, what I guess you could call, uh, there's a lot of intellectual and academic pedigree with my family. Um, yeah. mom was going to MIT at the time for graduate school. Dad was going to Boston college for law school. And then, you know, Bob Ross quote, happy accidents. Um, and then I came along. So I was born kind of just pretty much Boston. We can say for easy, just for easy sake. And okay. I, I spent the first few years there before, my parents actually ended up moving down to D.C. So most of my childhood was pretty much D.C., Maryland, Virginia area. Um, for those of you that are not Americans that are listening, it's really fucking small. Like you can drive through D.C., Maryland, and Virginia pretty much in 30 minutes. So that motherfucker's all the same. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> so I grew up, up kind of just outside D.C. at a very, I don't know, my parents always really prized education. So my mom, first-generation immigrant, my dad, I mean, I don't know. I, I guess we could always kind of play it to, you could put these crazy labels on it, but if you, I guess you were to distill it down to the most, it's kind of this really interesting story of my dad being this Kentucky farm boy, relocating, going to high school in Bangkok, and my mom being this political refugee from Myanmar because of my grandfather's work, and then meeting. It's such an odd and unlikely story, but then eventually, you know, they ended up going to D.C. where I, I grew up, and my dad has always worked in immigration law. Um, I like to say doing the good work, helping the brown people stay in the country, you know, that, <laughs> the good stuff. Um, and then my mom has always worked in public health. So okay. lawyer, dad, doctor, mom, pretty much as classic as it gets. And then, of course, with me, it sort of took a bit of a different route. But when I, gr when I was growing up, I went to a really small school. Um, it was a Montessori school. It's like this very specific style of Italian teaching where it's like the student gets their own sort of like independence and all these things. Um, you know, it's interesting. It's really small classrooms. And the reason why I'm telling you this is because when I was graduating like sixth grade, probably like 11, I was graduating with a class of like four people, including me. Wow. So socially inept was perhaps the best word. That um, is insane. Wait, six people, including you? Four people, including four. You. Yeah. So it was tiny. So it, it was in, in, I guess it's not a bad system of education. I think it's just very different. It's, it's maybe you could kind of chalk it up to like a modern, like hippy dippy sort of thing. But it was like, I remember being, you know, fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. You pretty much have 15 people in between. Wow, that's actually, but that's a, that's a pretty good. Which is great. Yeah. yeah. You get to, you get full attention from your teacher. You really. This is a private school or public? Private school. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So that makes sense. Okay. And, and that's also kind of one of the biggest issues with DC. And I'm sure, I mean, maybe there's more people that are more appropriate to kind of speak on them than I am. But one of the biggest issues, I think, in the nation's capital is the fact that you have the nation's capital, but most of the public schools there are, I mean, they just don't receive nearly much of the funding. And most of their kids, most of the kids end up, I mean, well, a lot of kids I went with get, end up getting sent to private school, which is unfortunate because you should have, I mean, I don't know. Anyways, it's the nation's capital should have a better fucking public education. Of course. hundred percent. I, I digress. But um, <laughs> so, 
essentially very socially awkward. I ended up moving to this school called Sidwell Friends in seventh grade, and I graduated from there. Okay. Sidwell is an interesting school because, um, well, Chelsea Clinton went there. Uh, Naomi Biden went there. The Obama kids went there. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So when I was... So it's like really full on. Yeah, it was, cr- it was, it was full on. It's a Quaker school, so it's kind of Christian. It's like if you took Christians and made them like a little more Buddhist. That's kind of like how it would be. Yeah. Um, but so I, I went there for until I graduated. And I remember be having this kind of like surreal bubble of an experience where it was like, you know, I was like a senior in high school. It was like went out and got stoned with homies on lunch break. And I'm coming back to the vending machine. And then there's like five Secret Service people and Malia Obama standing there getting a bag of fucking Fritos. And you're just like, <laughs> play cool, dude. Play cool. Like, don't say anything. Like, it's fine. But yeah, so it was, it was, and I guess to kind of go back, sorry, I I kind of get tangential a bit, but to go back to the question of what you were saying, I grew up kind of awkward, kind of insecure with my own self, not because, I mean, my parents raised me with an insane amount of self-esteem, like a lot of love, a lot of love, a lot of self-esteem and a lot of support, which has always been great. Yeah. Um, something that not a lot of kids are lucky yeah. enough, especially in this day and age to get, especially, and also, especially, I mean, not to, you know, stereotype, especially with upbringing and stuff, but I think I know a lot of either Asian or half Asian kids that did not receive the same sort of like, not even just affection because maybe I'm not one to talk on parenting, but I think just the level of like reciprocation and connection that you get with your parents can be really special. Of course. No matter what culture. Agreed. Um, so I, but then I, I went to the school, I was like 12, I was 12 years old. And, you know, I transferred to this big school where, you know, private school where it's really like kind of like, I wouldn't say elite, but, you know, it has this kind of reputation attached to it. And I was just so awkward. And it's not that I didn't have friends, but I always had like, you know, my tight group of guy friends yeah. who play video games in our homie's basement, all this stuff. The idea of popularity for me was so like, for me, it was interesting because I had always, you know, you kind of grew up watching TV shows in the 90s and early 2000s and stuff, and you're like, yo, this is what being popular is like. It's getting invited to parties. It's getting the girl and all this stuff. That I had had this, like, really kind of weird, I think kind of, like, not even misconception about it, but, like, what... Like, I, I wanted something so bad, but I really had no idea what I really wanted, I think, what it was. This idea, this very, like, kind of abstract idea of popularity. Um, and but But at the same time, I was perfectly happy chilling with my friends, and then it came about to be when I was 16. Well, no, when I was 15, it was my second year of high school, um, sophomore year in the States. And I got an opportunity to apply for a year abroad program. Okay. So I went and I spent my junior of high school, my full school year in living in France. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So I was, I was in, in Rennes or Rennes to say it a little more anglicized. Um, really small town, student town, you know, a couple, maybe four or five hour drive outside of Paris and I really, I mean, you know, my French wasn't great at the time, and I didn't know much about the program. I just knew that I kind of wanted something different for a bit to kind of, like, be able to reinvent myself a little. Um, I think maybe that's what it is as a kid, is when you're going through puberty and shit, you're constantly trying to find maybe ways to, like, redefine yourself or just kind of at least figure out your own self-image. So then I went to... Um, then I, I moved out there to Rennes. We stayed with I stayed with a host family, um, which was just the whitest French host family. It just it, quick what, story. What, what kind of uh, okay? Let's it, do the just quick to story. tell you really quick. This is how <laughs> this is how this is just the level of caucasity that happened when I got there. I and you know I'm Asian American guy grew up in the U.S. You know I, I connect with a lot of my Asian culture, but I'm pretty much a white American dude. Yeah, I mean you do look like a white American. Dude. Right, exactly. You know, it's uh, yeah, the mustache and eyes help a little bit with maybe adding a little bit of extra flavor in there. But um 
I, I remember getting the first day there, they, and, and a lot of people told me they were like, oh, this is just like a nice thing. Did you, you know, have they any were just tats back then? No, 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 no. I had none. I had okay. none. So this is kind of leads into it as well. So I, I get there in this, this very Catholic, very blonde hair, blue eyed French family, you know, dad is in the military, all this stuff. It was a little, it was, it was just very, very culture shock. And then all of a sudden I remember the first day for dinner, they made pasta and I go down to the dinner table and I didn't have, they didn't give me a fork or spoon or anything. And I was like, oh, like, can I get some utensils? And they were like, yeah, that's no problem. We just didn't want to set it for you first because we didn't know, would chopsticks be easier? Wow. I was like, yo, are you fucking, <laughs> are you, are you, like, I was, you guys joking right now? I was like, I was wow. Like, yo, I, I was waiting but for like the, you got punked thing to like show yeah. up. But I was just, I, I, I think I was just. Hang on. Uh, did they know you? Hey, how did they uh, like connect that Asian? Because I, I was well, so we had like exchanged a few letters. Like I told them I was like, you know, half Asian American, all this stuff. Well, I mean, you said half Asian American. Right, right. And I'm also Burmese. Like we don't eat with, we don't really eat with chopsticks. Right. Like, we eat with hands. We got like, we got <laughs> finesse with that shit. But I was like, at autumn, and I think like at 16, I was much, much less aware of kind of like these big like racial social implications. So I was like, ha ha, that's fine. And nowadays I probably would have been like, all right, it's time, it's time to fight Frenchie. Yeah, <laughs> Let's yeah. go. <laughs> I, <laughs> because it's one of those things that I've, I find that a lot of people instantly assume. I, I guess I, I, I can understand like they don't want to seem offensive or anything right. or assume it. But I do also think that the whole concept of you going to spend some time abroad would be to immerse yourself in that culture yeah. and not try to kind of take your culture there and try and push it on them. Sure. You know, so I can imagine, I would have thought that the first thing they would have been said is they would have set the fork and spoon and, you know, et cetera. And then and had you like, asked, you, 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 want chopsticks? <laughs> yeah, exactly. you know, had you asked like, oh, can I have some chopsticks? Then, you know, like that would have made sense, right. but wow, they just jumped straight for it. They just went right into it. So I was like, okay, I think I'm not in Kansas anymore, but I was there, you know, I kind of got out there and I, and it was funny, I, I was very, not that I didn't have friends, like I was saying, but I think I was very insecure with my own sort of self. I guess a good indication was I remember this, the year before I had visited my aunt in Bangkok, and I spent about three weeks kind of just paralyzed because I wanted to get my ear pierced, but I was so deathly afraid of what people would say when I got home. And it's a fucking earring. It's really Wait, not. Wait, so you came to Bangkok to get your ear pierced? No, no, I was visiting family. But okay. Then, but my aunt, who's super cool, she but was But I like, mean, as in, as in when you came here, that was like in your head? Well, no, 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 no. I guess maybe I should, I sh that, that, that part of, sorry, reading into it. I remember, so before I, just as a little, pre-like, I think this is how uncomfortable I was with my own self, was just the fact that the idea of getting an ear piercing or something, well, I, I happened to be in Bangkok at the time, and I was, you know, going to go back to school to start in the fall afterwards, okay. going into my, like, whatever, you know, sophomore year or something, right. being 15. And I think as like a 15 year old, like, you know, you shouldn't fucking worry about whether or not what people are going to say if you get a piercing, let alone anything, you know, the way you dress, all this stuff. So, yeah. and, and but I mean, the, the, the problem is typically, and not to fall into a tangent, I think the problem is also a lot of schools kind of set those rules. I don't know about your school, mm. but I think even I've just noticed recently, even in like Bangkok and in general, a lot of uh, private schools are okay, but public schools typically have a very strict po uh, policy on like uniform on how your hair should be like your natural colors not allowed to be like blue or like pink you know what i mean yeah and like even piercings like you you got to keep your piercings to almost like a normal right what they perceive or society perceives as normal so For sure. i guess like back then especially i think now less with the whole cancel culture which i don't agree with but like the, that whole entire uprising of 
be yourself you right. know right now i think it's less but i think back then i, I can imagine like the whole perception of yo he's a dude with an ear piercing that's like not yeah cool. <laughs> and and i think it was, it was funny because i remember i got it and then i got back and i remember three other dudes in my grade had all gotten their ear pierced oh amazing and Perfect. i was like i was like fuck i was like i was like i spent so much time worrying about this shit and and i remember as i got older thinking that you know when i was younger that people felt this way about me or all these kinds of things and then realizing that I think when you're a kid, when you're going through puberty or whenever you're just kind of growing up in a lot of life, even too, you, it's really easy to kind of fixate on what you might think that other people are talking about you or what the outward perception of you is. Well, I think the thing is in society, they don't, they don't typically, and I, I would say even upbringing wise, right? Cause effectively our kids are, our parents are all kids at some point, right? but we all forget that very key aspect that when you're a kid, Nobody tells you don't care about what the other person thinks. Right. You just assume now that you're an adult and you have that perception that your kid is also going to have that same thinking because they see how confident you are. For sure. And I don't think it translates like that. No, <laughs> I think, yeah. I, you know? I, I agree. I think it's one of those things that, you know, it, it's... And even if someone were to have, to have told me when I was like 15, it's like, dude, wear the Naruto shirt. It's fucking fine. Yeah. It's not going to make a difference. Like, you know, all these things. But I think... Even then, in when you're in the middle of it, it's hard to kind of like see exactly. I mean, I don't know. I guess probably also being a kid doesn't help either with it. Of course, but not. um, <laughs> but yeah. So, but then I came back when I went to France. It was kind of this new thing for me. It was this like. Did you, you know, try wine by then? Yeah. So I was six, I was sixteen, and I, I wasn't like going to house parties when I was in high school before then. But I got to France, and I was like, okay, I can drink, I can smoke cigarettes, I can, I can do what I, I can do what I fucking want. Right. And. Culturally, though, the French are pretty refined in respect to their, their, especially when it comes to dinner, I'm assuming. That's where you, when was the first time you tried booze and then when was the first time you tried wine? So, boo, so my, yeah, I guess that's the thing too is like I grew up with pretty chill parents. Not saying that like they, like. They let you get trashed. <laughs> right, right, right. But the, my, my, I remember being like, hey, like I remember being younger. My dad was, I was like, hey, like what's that? And my dad's like, oh, it's beer. He's like, you want to try a sip? I was like, sure, try a sip. Like, oh, it's fucking disgusting. And you're like, yeah, like that's beer. Like maybe you'll like it when you're older, but whatever. Uh, it, not to put the stigma around it, because I think that's the thing too. Is like I had friends that I grew up with, and they were not allowed to drink, not allowed to party. So oh wow! Okay. They went out. Were they were they from the like American families yeah, or Asian yeah, families? American families oh, too. Okay. Yeah, just wow. just differentiating. I think because also you're in private school, you have different. You know, some parents are a little more maybe strict, intense, whatever. You know, parenting is different in all these ways. But agreed. Um, yeah, I can understand. The the thing was, is I had friends that, you know, they had such a different relationship with alcohol or with partying or with the idea of socializing. I never had to lie to my parents. You know, I was always like, my mom was like, yo, if you're too wasted, call me at three in the morning. I'll pick you up. Don't worry. Like I might get a little mad, but I'd rather like, I'm that's chill, you know? Whereas I had, so I had this relationship with alcohol where it was like, when I did start drinking and doing these things, I, I, I think that ultimately I was maybe a bit more responsible because I think my parents had given me more of the onus or like the benefit of the doubt of being like, Okay, he'll take care of himself, and when he can't, like he'll he'll reach out to us because we've yeah. given him that as an outlet. But I, I got there, and you know, you're 16, you don't know how to drink, so you start. I remember the first time I drank like vodka was like we bought like a little thing of Smirnoff and like a cardboard orange juice thing, and like mixed it together, and we got like wasted on like a bench and like a little mini church in France. You know, it was just it was such a like it was. It was such a like teenage thing, but at the same time, it was like, you know, I was 16 getting to be in this new city. So not only was I like kind of coming of age, but it was in this totally new place. So it really changed, I think, a lot of the ways that I think I was able to feel a little bit more confident in myself. Um, also, just to kind of be 
a little bit more. I'm not, not, I'm not saying I'm a, you know, trying to be the most unique, outlandish person in the world, but it's like, I don't know, I've never met any other fucking Otras, so it's like I probably have to pay some you sort are, of... You are one of the only, right. if not the only Otra I know. <laughs> yeah, so I, gotta, I feel like i got to pay some due diligence to you know, at least uphold that, that end of the, like, I, I do like being, you know, different and unique and all these things. And it took some time to feel comfortable expressing that. And I think in a lot of ways, I still second guess myself sometimes, but I went to France and I guess that was kind of that factor where at a certain point when you're come growing up, whatever it is, you, you kind of hit this moment where you're like, or some people do where you're like, Oh, I don't need to give a fuck about not in a bad way, but it's like, I don't need to give a fuck about what these people think of me or what right. my social status is or what the certain perceptions are. Yeah. As long as I know, like I'm happy and I'm a good person, all these things. So it's funny. I remember I got back senior year and, um, my friend Kit tells me the funniest story. He was like, yeah, you know, I, cause I, I got a ta- I got two tattoos in France. Oh which wow. Was so out of character. Like no one would have ever fucking expected that I would have done well, that. Well, what, what tats did you get so in France? I got, I got this one, which is a little, it's a peacock. It's the, it's the symbol of like the democratic party in, in Myanmar that my, my grandfather worked for. And that was like the most meaningful. I actually told my parents. My mom was like, oh, that's actually cool. Like, I'm happy with that. She's like, that's probably the only tattoo he'll ever get. Yeah, she was like, she's like that's where it'll stop. <laughs> right, right. It, it definitely didn't end there. And then I got this like lotus flower on the other side that's gone through a lot of work over the years. Yeah. Um, but I came back and I remember Kit telling me this hilarious, really good friend of mine telling me a story a year later. He's like, yeah, I remember when you came back because someone was like running down the halls. They were like, yo, Otra's back. And did you guys know? He's fucking cool now. <laughs> And I was like, yo, two that's, tats was I was like, that's all it took. I was like, a black V-neck shirt and two tattoos, and I could have been fucking popular as shit the whole time. Wow. No, I, I, I think it was just kind of this, like, I got back, and I was still a similar person. I don't think I completely changed, but I think I, I was a little less concerned about, almost too much so, probably, about what other what perception, what people were thinking of me. Um, has, this, has this kind of... In general, throughout your life, is that it obviously it's evolved more now that you're you're older and your things like your thinking is much more independent in terms of I don't care about what anyone else thinks. But has that always been a situation for you growing up and like towards even university that you were constantly thinking about other people in the in respect to their thoughts, or was it more so post university where you kind of got over that? I think. Oh, that's a good question. Um. It's always been a flux for me. And it's always been this kind of flux between the absence, uh, like complete absence of like, oh, I don't give a fuck. I'm going to party. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do what I want. Um, to where the fact, to where it does have negative implications. Okay. To balancing that with being so like, oh my God, what will this person think? What will this mean if I say this? What are the implications? of me wearing this, you know, all these things that you can kind of go through in your head. So I think that for me, it's not constantly one thing. I think through phases of my life, I've kind of been more or less secure with, I think, my own idea of myself. Um, but yeah. I think the main thing for me is it's kind of just this reminder of being like, um, I, I guess the main thing is like, you know, I, I loved how outgoing I was when I stopped kind of caring about so much of the the restraints that I'd put on myself in my head, whether yeah, I was senior of high school, freshman year, you know, I remember I'd, I'd made everyone talk to everyone, like say hello, like text everyone. I, I was constantly trying to be as socially active and as outgoing as possible. Was that, was that, was that more uh, just you yourself or was it a reflection of the fact that you were trying to push it because you felt like you weren't socially active enough or you wanted to be more uh, accepted? I think that's definitely what it was. Um, 
not maybe like a trying hard thing, but I remember, you know, I got to college. I was like, yo, I don't look like a frat guy, but like, I want to be in a fraternity. I want to be that one dude that's different in the, in, in a whole system that's like, yeah. similar or like, yo, everyone's doing this. And like, yo, it's not typical for me to do this, but I want to do that. And I think part of it is exactly that kind of thing where it's also like where you're, you're trying as hard as you can to not only fit in, but also to be like, to bring attention to yourself to be like, Hey, like I'm, I'm different. Like I'm me. And like, look, like you can see all these other guys around me and like, but I'm, I'm fucking different. You know, like I'm Otra. Yeah. Um, and, but then again, yeah. But then it's always kind of in flux because you can get too much of that. And then I don't know. I think that there was also a time in my life where I was like, yo, I don't necessarily love, I mean, not like not love myself, but I didn't know if I necessarily connected with the kind of person that I was presenting myself. Yeah. And I think that was... But I think that's also a lot of you finding yourself. Yeah, and I think that was a lot of university for me too. Because um, I guess to go in, back into what the... What did wa- you do for university? Yeah, so I... So I well, and this kind of comes back to France because like what you were saying, I was like, you know, I was really quiet. I left and then I started like in France. I started drinking and started socializing and started like... How, what, what were you mostly drinking in France? Wine? Uh, tequila. Really, really bad. Really cheap tequila. Why, yeah, it's terrible. You, of all the places... I know. I was like 16, bro. Okay, so we used to go to this... The, there was in the town in Rennes, there was a spot called... Uh, was it was it educated tequila drinking or were you just drinking no, tequila no, because ignorant. it was like... Completely ignorant. Oh, okay. Completely ignorant. No, no, no. It's totally ignorant. I just remember it was like... So we used to go to this street in France, in, in Rennes. It's called Rue de la Soif, and it means thirsty street. Oh, okay. So all the very, bar- fi- very, all, very, very fitting. All the bars are there. <laughs> and there was this one spot called the Madison Avenue, the Madison Pub. Um, shout out John Ambler, Aaron Cooper, my homies, if they listen to this. Um, we used to go, and the, you could get a meter of tequila shots. And it was a, a what? A meter. So it was pretty much they brought out like a meter stick ruler that they had carved little holes into. And it was like a bunch of shots of tequila. That just sounds like a hangover. It was so bad. And and, and by the end of the school, because the school, you're a broad program. We weren't technically allowed to go out and drink. We were still bound by American rules. Really? But everyone still did it. Like, but no that one, makes no sense. Why would they even try and do the whole... I, I don't know. No one gave a fuck. I think it was just to kind of protect their asses. So it's like, you know, in case your kid gets really drunk, like you That's can't sue issue, us. Yeah. Right, exactly. Um, but I remember like the last week of school it was so fuckless. We went out at lunch and all did like a meter, like not each, but like we went and did a meter of tequila shots. I remember coming back and you know, you're 16, you think you're slick and you're like, no, there's 20 guys smelling like tequila right now coming back into <laughs> class. Like it's not fucking chill. No, but I, I drink a bunch of stuff and I remember wine for me, the moment it hit me was like we were doing this like little bus trip through the Loire Valley. And um, I remember sneaking off with some friends to a cafe and just drinking some whatever house white wine by the glass kind of thing or maybe it was leon maybe it was ren i i mean one of the trips we took did you did they did they did any of that spark a thing in you when i'm assuming they explained to you the wine not, not kind of for me it was like i remember i was talking to the my first girlfriend i ever dated who i was dating at the time um and she was like, what do you want to do? Because I was a junior. She was a senior. And this is in... Uh, this is in France. Oh, yeah, okay. this is in France. She was and French or American? She's American. She was also in the program. Oh, okay, um, okay. Shout out to her. I think she's like a skydiving sky instructor now or something. Wow, damn. Yeah. Um, but she was like, what do you want to do? I remember we were at this little like Mexican restaurant. And of course, we're in well, France. I, 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 in I think, I think you went to the wrong place. Right, dude. I know. Tequi- we're, meet along tequila shots. <laughs> you're you're going to a Mexican restaurant. I haven't heard you tell me about a French spot yet. <laughs> yes, okay. Well, so let's just pretend we were in a bistro in Paris where I'm having like steak free. No, essentially. And, she, and she's just like, you know, what do you want to do? Um, and I really didn't know. I remember meeting the college counselor and I was like, maybe I'll do medicine. You know, maybe I'll do law. Like, that's what my dad does. That's what my mom does. And then I remember after this trip and like drinking some wine, I was like, oh, well. I can be a winemaker. 
I didn't know anything about wine. I didn't, I knew that I liked drinking it and like, I didn't really, but I didn't really know much more about like the entire, like, you know, existential thing of making wine. Yeah. So I was like, fuck it. I'll apply to winemaking school. Wait, when did you do this? So this was immediately after. So yeah, so I I finished junior year of high school, which is like kind of when you start planning all your university stuff. Yeah. Okay. So third year of high school. And then you guys have three years of high school, four years of high school. How does your guys' high school work? We we have uh, our high school. So basically, ours is like first grade to like say eighth grade. Yeah, is uh, primary school. That's like six through thirteen ages. Yeah. Yeah. Or fourteen. Yeah. Um. Then basically, the eighth grade to the tenth grade is your middle school, where you do your GCSEs and so on. That's uh, first two years. Oh, so yeah, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. And then our high school is the. 11th grade to 12th grade. So two years, two years. Oh, that's wild. So the, the 12th grade is where you'll do your IB or your A-levels or okay. your SATs before university. Gotcha. So there's two years and then there's university. So f- I guess you do your version of high school is the four years, which is our middle school and our high school. Exactly. Okay, yeah. Cool. So middle right. school for us is technically seventh and eighth grade. Okay. So one through six, first through sixth grade, and then you have seventh age, which is middle school, ninth through 12th grade for oh, us, damn. four years of high school. Wow. So when you're in your third year, that's so when you, you kind of start looking at suffer schools. high school syndrome the whole way. Oh, the whole way through, baby. Yeah, whole way through. Football so, team and all that jazz, cheerleaders. I, I and was everything. no, man, I was so bad <laughs> at sports, dude. I fucking I played lacrosse, and my parents still give me shit. Wow, I remember, lacrosse. I, remember, I, I bought them. I made them buy all of the equipment, and I was so fucking bad. I was so bad. I, I mean, I like to joke now. I, I, I just like. Do you didn't quit the team though? No, no, I just wasn't. I, I mean, like, I think that like genetically, I wasn't. I wasn't white enough to like be good at it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> of course, it's a fucking Native American sport, and now all the only people that play it are fucking white guys named Chad. Anyways, <laughs> but I, I, um, yeah, I, I, I just I wasn't much of a sports kid, but I also wasn't really much of a drama kid. Um, I liked music a little bit too and stuff, but I, I, I kind of like kind of kept into my own world. But I remember getting back and then applying to schools and was like, okay, what, what schools can I go to to, to apply for winemaking? So I but, well, okay. So what sparked this whole I want to start into wine? And firstly, winemaking as in vineyard? Like making that shit. Yeah, like making it full on. So th- I was so disillusioned at 16. And I think that I remember that conversation. And it's funny because I haven't talked too much about this conversation until you asked me about it. Um, uh, fuck, I should probably message Christina and ask her if she remembers it all. But I think what it was was like, I think I really just did not know exactly what I was looking for. Um, this and I, is this and is which which part of high school? This is your last two years. Yeah, last two years. Okay, and I and I think that part of it also kind of comes. Is it back a program this, like, that would come with high school? Is this your no, totally no, no, extracurricular? No, no. So for winemaking, you have to jump. It's it's only in university. So you have some. I mean, like I, I can't imagine there's any. Yeah, I don't think there's any in high school linked to it. But I mean, there's a big focus on science, all this stuff. Yeah, of course. So. Which is what wine making. Right. So I was, I was looking at colleges to, to apply to, you know, a few came up like Davis in California is one of the best Cornell, okay. but I was like, oh, I'm not fucking smart enough to get into Cornell. I didn't even, didn't even apply to Cornell. Um, you didn't have the grades or you just felt less. I, yeah, no. And all, I guess that's another question you asked earlier too, as well is I've always considered myself an intelligent person. Okay. Maybe in, that's in, a, in what areas? Because some people say like my science and stuff's my area, or math, or right. I think English and literature. For me, it's al- I've always been real good at writing, real good at writing and talking. No, no, no. I've always been. I've always for me writing and reading presenting. and presenting. That's always been the things I've been very proficient at. I've always kind of struggled with science and math, and and I think a lot of times too with with school. Sometimes it's it was always very hard to motivate myself, and that's not really an excuse, but I think that 
maybe there was some underlying thing. So I was never necessarily the best student, but I've always considered myself maybe an intellectual. But now as soon as I say that and I hear myself say it, I sound like a fucking asshole. So <laughs> yeah, you know, but I think I like to think that I'm somewhat intellectual. Um, I think you are. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but you know, it, it, I got to, I got to school. Well, I applied to a couple schools. Washington state university okay. was the first one to accept me. Nice. And, um, you know, I'd never been to Washington state. I'd been to the did West you, coast. Okay, a so bit. hang on uh, after France, did you even travel around the States? No, no, oh, no. Okay. Every, so Washington, okay. Yeah, everyone does the college tours, all yeah. that shit. I was like, ah, fuck it. Like, I'm just going to apply, and I'm just going to go somewhere. Okay. And I was like, I kind of just wanted to go. I didn't want to stay too close go? to home. Okay, yeah. That's what Mike was going to ask. Yeah. My, I mean, my, fa- my, and my, my parents didn't care at all. I mean, they knew it wasn't that I wanted to get away from family. It was more so that I just, D.C. is such a small bubble. Um, it's, a, it's not a very big city, and especially when, you know, you go to private school and your friends go to private Like, you kind of, it, it's... It's very easy to kind of fall in with the same crowd. You just have the same. You just wanted something, a new experience. Again. Exactly. Yeah. So I. Is that, is that is that kind of what sparked? It sparked from France. Like you really didn't enjoy France that much that you kind of wanted the whole thing again, but in the states. Absolutely. Okay. There's kind of this like adrenaline rush that I got from being like I remember getting to France and being like I don't really know anyone. I gotta make friends. I don't know this country. How did that, how did that make you feel? I don't know the language. It was intense. I remember I got there and I, the first six hours, I think of just being in that house. I got there that night. Do you have a lot of anxiety? Oh, yeah. Hell, yeah. So much anxiety, which which we can also talk about mental yeah. health stuff yeah, later on, later. too, which I got diagnosed with in college. Um, but I remember getting there and just crying all night, just being like oh, wow. so so excited, so ready, so happy, putting down my bags, and then just sobbing, just sobbing uncontrollably because I was like, that was the first of, you know, the next nine months of me being – you know, there, you know, my plan was like, you know, a lot of people went home for Christmas, all this stuff. I was like, I'm not going home because I know if I go home, then I might not want to come back and I just got to stick it through. And it was one of the best decisions of my life. You know, I met some of my best friends that I'm still really, really tight with today. Um, actually, yeah, some of my best friends. Um, but also it, I think it helped really kind of help me define the important things for me as a person. Um, so then, you know, I got back, did senior year, grades weren't as hot as I'd like them to have been, but I ended up getting into Washington State University. Um, and this was directly into the winemaking program. Oh, nice. Okay. Viticulture and Enology, technically, is what it's called, because they also have a wine it's business. It's called what? Viticulture and Enology. So viticulture Vitic- is technically Vi- the wine growing. Viticulture and? E- Enology. Enology. But it's okay. spelled O-E-N-O-L-O-G-Y. But it's pronounced with an E? Yeah, that O-E is like a enology. Wow, okay. O-E. Yeah, I don't know how... Uh, <laughs> Maybe our Nordic friends would say it differently. Um, but yeah, enology. Um, and I remember getting there and being like, yeah, dude, I'm so fucking excited to learn about wine, all this stuff. And then I got in there and they're like, yeah, so you're going to have to take a lot of these chemistry courses. You're going to have to take these math courses. And I was just like, yo, yo, hold the fuck up. I was wait, like, wait, what, what was the math part? Math in order to take chemistry. So essentially there is certain, I guess you have to take a, have a certain comprehensive level of math in order to understand, I guess, like formulaic chemistry or something like that. Um, and uh, and the issue was like, I, did, I mean, like, you know, it's not that I didn't have the, the intellectual capacity. It's just like, I just, I feel bad because, I mean, there are some things in my life that I get faced with an obstacle. And I'm like, fuck it, no, I'm, I'm going to keep doing this. And then there are some things where I'm just like, nope, can't be asked. No. Well, I mean, and, I yeah. mean uh, why would you want to even take math? <laughs> you already, like, it's like me, right? Like. I was forced to take math, and then I literally slept in the math exam because I was like, I just don't, I just don't like math. Yeah, yeah. 
Like, I can do one plus one and all that jazz. That's cool. Right. But at what point am I going to need to use a protractor? <laughs> it's the same meme that keeps coming up. It's like, you guys taught me the quadratic equation, but y'all motherfuckers didn't teach me how to do my taxes. Right, that's exactly. that's all I care about right now. Like, uh, Y equals MX plus B my ass. Uh, yeah, you know like, what I mean? th- none of that's going to give me the end of the tax return. You know? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so I, I, like, I, you know, I got into school and, and I did about my first year there doing the wine program. Um, I was taking yeah. science classes. I was taking wine classes. And the thing is, it's but difficult I'm in the U.S. just curious. What, what was the whole reason that kind of pushed you into this wine? So Oh, yeah. Sorry. So it was literally this conversation at this dinner in France. And just, she was, just that one she was like, what do you want to do? And I remember drinking this wine. This is your girlfriend at the yeah, time. Yeah, girlfriend at the time. And I remember being like, yeah, fuck it. I'll make wine. Well, I'm, con- I'm confused here. Well, I like and, and it's funny because now I'm talking about it. I really don't know what there wasn't I, I think a lot of people were like yeah you know i remember walking with my father in the vines and tasting the grapes or like you you had this amazing glass of wine and then that was like what sparked it you're like how do i make this all right. over again Th- there was some good great wines that i had you know i, I was in italy for christmas with my family so we had some stuff that i loved are, but you are, are your family huge wine drinkers no 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 i don't even come from a big wine family either okay cool. foodie family but yeah, yeah. It, as with every asian family we yeah. love to eat and congregate um but yeah, I, I, it's funny because now I wish I could give a better answer for. So it was just like out of the blue, the spark whole of the impetus moment. for it. And I, I remember maybe it was just like, yo, I want to do something different. Maybe it comes back to that outro of just being like, yo, you got to pull. Well, I mean, the, the wild left hook, you know, yeah. do whatever you can to do something outlandish. Agreed. But I mean, the the, way, the strange thing for me would be that you kind of, you know, when we when we typically go, oh, I want to do this. And then you kind of start the process of doing it, and then you realize, actually, hold on a second. Yeah, this yeah, is, yeah, hold up. <laughs> this is not really what I thought it would be. Yeah, I'm going to switch, right? Because a lot of people, right. they want to become, say, doctors, and then midway through, they end up becoming a lawyer or something. You know, they're like, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. I think sure. I like law or like any job that you do, you know, and then you do your part-time, and your part-time actually becomes your passion. Right. So that's why I was conf- confused because I was like, during one dinner, you literally turned to your, your girlfriend, asked you one question, and you actually followed through till now. So this is the best. Okay, so this is making it more confusing. I actually didn't. So I executed that idea briefly. I did that first year of college. Okay. And then I, I was like, fuck wine. Uh, not fuck wine. Like, I mean, I was in college. You know, like how much, how much, of, how much of it was you really hated the professor, and how much of it was you just didn't like the way the course was designed. Yo, okay, so because a lot of a lot of it can be the professors, right? You know? Yeah, one professor I didn't my fucking soil sciences professor. God, that guy was a dick. I mean, man, like talking about dirt is boring. I get it, <laughs> but if you can make it interesting, you're a fucking champion. And this guy was that. Not up to the. Yeah. No, but also, <laughs> it was, and, and it was like it. I remember it, it was less about the professors, also, but I think it was just. I mean, I was also. I'll be honest too, not to hype myself up too much, but. I was a freshman in college, and I think part of me was just like, I just want to drink, and I want to chase girls, and I want to like party, and I want to like have fun. And it's totally possible to do both. It, of course, it, that's the point of university. But of course, I was just—I think for the amount of time and dedication that it would have taken me to just put those first couple steps to like really plant myself in that path of wine as early then, it would have taken 
a little bit more like mental fortitude on my, what, my side. Know, what age are you guys when you start college? I was fucking 18. I was 18. Oh, your drinking age is 21 or Yeah, 18? 21. So, so then how are you supposed to do the whole wine thing? Right. So you're not technically allowed to taste wines until you're 21 and do those classes. So, so everything wait, you're hang learning on. So is you're just learning all the basics. Pure theoretical. Ain't that some shit? That's nuts. Yeah, that's is ridiculous. So, so you learn the dirt thing, but you don't even get to understand why it's so important until I, you're like 21. I learned the specifics of 45 different grape varietals before I drank probably 90% of them in, cl- wow. yeah, in class. I remember being like, oh, Viognier, cool, passion fruit and fucking stone fruit, whatever. Yeah, but that, like, would make it, that would make it very difficult to kind yeah. of connect everything together. You can't really compartmentalize yeah. anything that way. And I think it's like... That's a weird course. Right. It's weird. And I think in the U- yeah. Okay, so anyone listen to this, if you're going to study wine, don't do it in the U.S. Or go to school when you're like 21 or some shit. I don't know. Probably don't go to the school <laughs> in the U.S. right now anyways. But uh, anyways. But I, I mean, I mean, for, for you coming up, right? So you, you did this wine course. And then from the wine course, you kind of graduated to what? So funny so enough. So after the first year, you're oh, like, I'm about, to, I'm, about to, I'm about to fuck you up so bad <laughs> with my college trajectory, dude. So I, I swear to God, I probably have some sort of, I mean, not to self-diagnose because there are... There's plenty of things that I'm actually diagnosed with mental health wise, but not to self-diagnose, but I think that it's ADD, ADHD at some point because in my life, it's always been like, this is cool. Jump head first into this. Try this. Jump head first into this. And then you're like, nah, I, mean, I guess I, maybe I, that's I feel a like, lot. I feel like that's most people. That's a lot of people. Um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't call it ADHD, but I feel like that's life ADHD. Yeah, I guess I guess that's the case. Yeah, <laughs> the maybe. Yeah, I probably shouldn't. It's probably not very. It's probably a little problematic of me to try and self-diagnose a little bit. But for me, it was like it was so. So I finished wine, and then I was like, "Oh fuck, I love tattoo. Like I love drawing. Like I was drawing a shitload." And I, I, you know, I gotten tattoos. Had you, had you, had you always been like that sort of person? Like even when you were in classes, you were always drawing and sketching. Nah, and nah. It was when I first got my tattoo. I was like, "Yo, I want to like draw because okay. I like tattooing stuff." Were you naturally just good at drawing? No, no, no. I, oh, okay. If I want to, like, I'm okay at drawing, but like, if I want to be really good at drawing, like, it's gonna take some work again. It's okay. like kind of like the chemistry thing for oh, school. Oh, okay, fair enough. But. <laughs> And I remember being like, uh, you know, I did that first year of wine. I was like, okay, I'm going to do, I'm going to do like drawing and art now. But my mom, like this, like, you know, mom was like, I'm not going to tell my mom I'm doing an art degree. So I was like, oh, I'll do fashion design. So I declared as fashion design for a year. So wait, hang on. Did you, did you, did you do the art degree or did you do fashion design? No, so I did fashion design, but it includes art classes. So this is really confusing. So you took the whole fashion course just for that one situation. I started taking fashion courses just so I could take the art classes as well. And I don't think, honestly, I think I could have just told my mom, I was like, hey, I'm fucking doing I would have thought that would be. And she would have been fine with it. But I had, <laughs> I think in my head, I was like, I can't have her know that I want to like do tattooing or something. So I was like, yeah, sure. I'll draw naked people all day. Like, why not? Um, you just went around the bushes, then around the block just right. to do the one damn thing. Oh, dude, I fucking, I ran this, I ran the fucking 10K around know, the, whole, right? the whole, everything. <laughs> when you could literally just go across the yard. Literally could have got into it. And then. And then towards the end of that year, so that's the second year of university. Okay. I, I, I got really into philosophy, and this was simply because, well, for a few things. So um, how did how did the philosophy thing start? Yeah. So this is yeah. So tying into it. So that first year was very much doing you wine, skipping every you doing skipping the wine? thing, skipping every. I mean, doing wine, but not being fully present as yeah. I should have been freshman year. Sophomore year was like okay. You went into the fashion thing. Dig in your heels a little bit more. Yeah, do some do some more drawing. Do the fashion stuff, which I found that there were parts of it that I was very good at. Okay. Um, but at this point in my life, I was very, you know, I was kind of like I had friends, but I was 
partying a lot. I was drinking a lot. This is in where? This is in Washington State okay, in University. Cool. And I was and I was like I was smoking a lot and and it was just like I think for me it got You didn't do any spring summers spring breaks around the US and stuff or No, everyone kinda did. Uh you we just I always stayed. just kinda chilled in Washington. Okay, I loved it out there. Okay. So we'd either just like I mean, fuck, we just like go out in the woods and like yeah. do a bunch of psychedelics and shit. And yeah. that was kind of our spring break. Um but we for me it was i was just in this place where i was very comfortable no i, I for a moment I, yes comfortable but but in that same sense kind of uncomfortable i was like i was very i was dealing with a lot of anxiety i was having like panic attacks you know i was about just, life or like what was the anxiety typically stemming from or what kind of you, did you ever know what triggered it right and it wasn't it wasn't one specific trigger it was just kind of like i mean as with most most kind of like depression and clinical anxiety is you're just yeah. kind of dealing with these imbalances. Of course. Um, but it was, of course, exacerbated by the fact that I was, you know, drinking, partying, of smoking, course. doing all these things. It, it messes with your hormone balance and everything else. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I was all and, you know, you're like you're a 19 year old. You're still a fucking kid. And you're trying to figure all this shit out. So I remember that's at that point I was like I was trying to find something that was. Maybe not adding more meaning, but I needed to find something that I could connect with a little bit more. Yeah. Um, so I was raised not like super strictly Buddhist, but like we went to temple on the weekends. You yeah. know, it was always a really big part of the family. My dad actually, he converted to Buddhism before he even met my mom when he oh, was nice. like 14 okay. years old. It was like a Kentucky. I don't yeah. even know how the fuck he found it. He probably found some some book in a library and ended up reading it and liking what he saw. Interesting. Um, but I, so I was always kind of raised with like pretty like fundamental Buddhist, like moral, which is very, very relaxed kind of situation, which yeah. is great. It was really good. But then, then in college, you know, I, I kind of was getting into this phase where I was very, very anxious, really, really uncomfortable with myself, very like unsure about my own, my own perception of myself. And I guess I got really, really into reading philosophy. And a lot of it started with this Buddhist philosophy, this writer named Ram Das. Okay. And Ram Das is actually his name is originally Richard Alpert. Oh, I didn't know that. American I know, guy. I've, I've read Ram Das. Yeah, and, and and huge in so much not even just American but South Asian, Southeast Asian. I mean, he's just a really big figurehead in kind of Buddhist philosophy. He's yeah. he's a dude from Harvard. He's like a he was this American guy, and he ended up moving to India and studying Hinduism and Buddhism, and yeah. just I think did a great job of kind of translating it into a very kind of modern and very like human accessible lens so what i mean by saying this is i started reading a lot of ram das and i started trying to meditate and um did that kind of help your anxiety and that really helped a lot okay. that really did it, it kind of helped um you know whatever was going on in my life whether it was like whatever like fucked up ex-girlfriend situation i had m yeah. put myself in or whatever thing it was this sort of this this thing that i could come back to and i remember really enjoying it because i remember i had really good friends that were very supportive they were like yo like you know stoner homies were like oh yeah let's like fucking meditate today and shit oh that's cool that's awesome yeah so it was good um and then that's that's kind of what led me to the way i finished my university degree so the last two and a half years after those first two were all dedicated to studying my philosophy degree okay so i graduated it i did four and a half because very honestly, my first semester, I went deficient because I was fucking just fucking around too much. Of course. So I had to do another semester. Um, that makes sense. Yeah, right. <laughs> it totally does. Uh, and and it, but it was it was great because I, I had I had this opportunity to write, you know, page like pay, huge papers that I loved. I had opportunity to talk in seminar classes, all these things. 
And that I think has really allowed me that last few years of both having philosophy, Buddhism, these things to help with my own mental health issues that I was dealing with, but then also being able to take that into what I was studying, what I was writing about, not to make it sound self-important, but that was really big for me. Um, and, but of course, then you have the question like with most degrees, well, with some degrees, we're like, oh, I got a philosophy degree. Like, what the fuck do I do now? Like, you know, going rate for philosophers is not very high these days, That's unfortunately. Much, yeah. uh, <laughs> it's the cardboard box in the <laughs> alley, right? right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, Screaming so, out at people. Yeah. You know, the end is nigh kind of shit. I think I, and, and I, well, I guess to kind of come back to it, it's funny. My dad studied philosophy in college as well. Um, he studied very, very specifically a lot of German and Russian philosophy. I don't know Interesting. what the fuck was wrong with him in university, but we'll always disagree <laughs> with that. Fuck Nietzsche till the day I die. I hate, I absolutely hate Nietzsche. But anyways, um, but I think that's part of what we connected to. And then I was like, you know, maybe I'll go into law because that's something philosophy yeah. can, take, can take you there. You're, you're good at talking. You're good at writing. What are the ways that you can kind of implement this? Yeah. Um, and I guess this is part of the problem now. So now I've told you kind of the general, as general as, as, as much of a background of the university as I can just to pepper in a little bit because what we were talking about with wine, what was the, the, the sort of the impetus that led me to hear when I got back from France, sorry to backtrack in the timeline again. Um, when I got back, I did my senior year of high school before going off to university. I already knew that I was getting into the wine program, but for the last few months of high school, your senior year, rather than doing class, they asked that you do an internship. So I worked in a restaurant. Okay. Um, and it was a restaurant called Restaurant Nora. It has since since been closed in D.C., but it was actually the first or certified organic restaurant in America. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, and it was it was for me. It was I thought it was exactly what the restaurant experience was supposed to be. You know, the owner was no longer the chef. She was just this crazy drunk Austrian. Sorry, wild drunk Austrian French woman that would just come into the kitchen wasted and just pick people apart. And I was like, this is what being in a restaurant must be like, you know? And, uh, and, and I did those first few months and I was like, I was like really, really energized. Where, by where were you in the restaurant in terms of that? I was just, I mean, I was, I was, I was a prep cook, you know, I'd come okay. in, at, come in during the day, cut vegetables, work a little bit at night. Um, you weren't really yelled at, or were you? Were no, yelling? I mean, I was. I for sure was. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, constantly berated. Um, I remember walking in, and the the owner, the woman, the she was like, I because I I've I've had I've got fucking big old earlobes. I got gauges that I've had forever plugs and i walked in she's like oh the, the kids these days they have the big ears i do not understand <laughs> and i was like oh fuck this is gonna be such a shit show already i can tell i remember one day i was making vinaigrette and she comes over and i still because my buddy aaron who we went to france together he actually got me the job we joke about this she i remember i was whipping up a vinaigrette and she comes over and she goes this vinaigrette it looks too salty <laughs> And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? It looks too salty? Like, what, what the fuck is the determination what, what, for that? <laughs> exactly. What, how, how does it look salty? Yeah. So we'll just joke about it forever. And, like, it would be shit. Like, you just hear people screaming about, like, fava beans or dumb shit. I think a lot of maybe people's restaurant experiences coming up. I but then it would be closer to that experience. Right. So then, then fast forward a little bit more to university. And I cooked in college at this restaurant called the Black Cypress, um, which is actually probably one of the most foundational restaurants. Like, that really set a god of foundation for me. Uh, and the chef was like, man, uh, uh, nice guy. I mean, I mean, nice guy outside of the kitchen. 
Yeah, uh, but it's it's weird. I feel like that's a lot of chefs. That is a lot of chefs. I was just talking to uh, the homie Sam today at Cut Boy, who does the knife store here in Bangkok, and he's like, you know, there's a difference between being hard and being a dick. And yeah, of course. Like, and you got to find the balance. Um, there's got there's that there's that fine line. Right, exactly. And but you know, and this guy was he's he's from Cyprus. Uh, he's Greek. He's the Greekest name that I've ever heard in my life. His name is Nikiforos Pitzilionis. Wow. Yeah, Greek as fuck. Um, but, you know, All real he just like. he was a Leonidas at the start. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> he had the beard, everything. Um, and the guy, I mean, he really knew how to run his kitchen. You know, he, I, from what I remember, he, he had staged at like French Laundry and all these things. Oh, wow. And, so he's pretty damn experienced. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in the kitchen, it was like this. It was, it was, you were just, you, I remember going into service and being like, what am I going to get fucked over on today? Like, it was just. It was it was constantly something. But to be fair, also I was learning and I was fucking up nonstop. So and as a chef, you're kind of learning these things. I remember my stage. I went in and I was chopping vegetables, and he looks at me. He goes, "You know how to wash dishes?" And I was like, "What do you mean?" And the guy goes, and the other chef goes, "Don't fucking." He's like, "You're here to hire him for a chef. Like, dude, you're not here in a fucking fire dishwasher position." I was like, "Okay, thank God." So I cooked there for a little while. Um, so I guess to kind of underline all of it is that. Wine has been important since I made that decision in that stupid fucking restaurant with my ex-girlfriend when I was 16. But there's always been this underlying, like, cooking, enjoying food, working in restaurants, that yeah. kind of thing. Um, so then, sorry, to come back to university, I was finishing, you know, philosophy degree, um, philosophy, and most of my focus was, like, you know, I just studied a lot of Buddhists and Christian philosophy and theology and stuff, and I'm like, that shit is not practical in real life. I mean, of like course. it kind of, like, I love reading about it and whatever. I, I like to joke that most of my university was just getting stoned and writing papers. Um, but it, it lacked this very, like, I, I was jealous of my friends that were like, yo, I went, to, I'm, I'm a civil engineer. I'm going to go work for this firm. Like, oh, I did computer engineering. I'm going to go work for Amazon. I kind of, I, I was very, not very, but I think part of me was really envious of this, like, ah, oh, I just wish that I could have, trajectory like that where but the thing here is if you, you, you there's no way you could have because something so uh, essential to that being like math or you know like hardcore right. situations you've never liked so exactly you could never end up in that trajectory ever yeah you know because you you literally like you would give up part way and that's because your passion wasn't there for sure so that's a thing i feel like with those situ certain circum circumstances it's very difficult to really because like I've had that situation where I've looked at someone and I've been like, man, I wish it was that. And then I think about it and I'm like, actually, but that's not even my passion. You know, like it'd be great to be like Mark Zuckerberg, but to like learn programming and all that jazz. First real quick, yeah. just so everyone knows how I feel, fuck Mark Zuckerberg. Oh, if no, I, of course. If but I, I mean, see him, it's on site. <laughs> but of course. But I mean, I'll like, punch his robot ass. <laughs> but I mean, think about it, right? Like if you were if you were Mark Zuckerberg sat in that like, you know, dorm room and you could program Facebook Right. And you could, well, technically it'd be run the way you'd want it to be run. Right. But I'm saying is like in certain circumstances like that, like even the guys that made WhatsApp, the guys that made Instagram, a lot of that just comes down to programming. Right. And sure. all these cool apps that we're using. Right. TikTok, for example, algorithms and all that. It's all math and programming. And when I think about it, I'm like, I could never do that job because I hate the, those certain circumstances. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. Pu pu puzzle solving. In terms of sitting in front of a computer, I, I'm not a fan. It's not your you know? shit. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, like, in that, in what I'm saying to you is, though, like, I, I, at any point did you kind of just look at it and then finally go, actually, like, you, you can kind of find yourself in terms of 
going back to the wine and so on instead of kind of caring and seeing your friends going to like engineering and stuff and going, oh, I really wish I was that. Did you kind of go, actually, you know what? I'm going to do this and do this more hardcore than I did it before in totally. terms of the wine? That, yes. I- it's exactly what you're saying. It's the perfect paradox. It was like, as much as I wanted the trajectory, God knows that I wouldn't have been happy with a life that would have afforded that to me, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um. Maybe not even in the sense of like, you know, if I'd gone to cooking school, then it would be, you know, a clear outline of becoming a psalm or a chef would have been there. But for me, it was never, I mean, I think... I think with as with a lot of people, every year is kind of its own new outcome in which you're, how am I going to further invest myself into what I'm doing? And I would say that my, it's funny because, you know, talking about this now, you see the whole, the whole picture of it. Funny to think about the fact that I made this decision, this conscious, conscious decision to try and enroll myself and try and invest myself in the world of wine when I was 16 and not having any fucking clue about it. And then 2016 rolls around, and that's when I really got into wine. So what was what was the trigger? So, um, man, this is fucked up again. Uh, so I, I, it's funny because I, I think that I've listened to so many podcasts with chefs and these really like magnanimous and really important people in the industry and stuff. And yeah. there's always these really kind of like deep and complex stories. And I always have that classic story of like, you know, the reason I love food is I, I ran around the kitchen with my grandmother. She always taught me how to sh- cook Burmese food, all these things. Um, so I've always had that connection with there. But with wine, it's funny because you know, I didn't, I didn't, I don't have a wine family. I didn't grow up drinking a lot of wine. As you, you know, as you've already heard, my decision to go into wine when I was younger was purely spurred off of just like I think individualism and wanting yeah. to do something very different. So I graduated. Just to preface this a little bit, I graduated 2015 in December. I had gotten out of um, a very long on and off relationship, um, easily the most toxic relationship I've been in my life. But we won't talk too much about it. Of course, with every relationship, there's good and bad, and you learn things about yourself and other people. Um, but I remember we had think I had just gotten broken up with, and I was like, "Fuck it!" Like I, I you know, I'm gonna move. I'm going to move. I'm going to do something new. I'm going to do something different. So I graduated. You're going to move like as in city? Yeah, move city. I I moved to Yangon. I moved to fucking Myanmar. Oh, wow. So you didn't even just move. Yeah, I literally, I put all my shit in storage in this, you know, town of 20,000 people, which was mostly the university, maybe a little bit more. And then I got. Your family didn't live in D.C.? No, so wait, so they did, but other side of the country. So it would have been too much to try and like. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Try and move everything over. Um, and I had a pretty good life, a little established. I mean, I still do have kind of a life established over in Washington State. It's very much my home base. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember being like, yeah, I got to do something different. I got I to gotta just figure it out. And so I got on, I bought a one-way ticket, um, and I got on a plane to go to Myanmar because my mom and my stepdad and my sister were actually all living there at oh, the okay. time. So I was like, I got a place to stay. You know, I my idea was like, oh, I'm going to go to Myanmar. I'm going to reconnect with my roots like i'm gonna you know there's this hilarious comedian i mean a lot of his stuff is very aged and dated and whatever problematic you want to call it now but you know russell peters oh yeah yeah Yeah, so and and he's he talks about it when he goes to india and he's like yeah like let me off this plane i'm gonna show these these indians how fucking indian i am and then he's like as soon as you as soon as they open the doors i was like i'm fucking canadian man he's like you just get this wafting shit smell and you're like oh my god And that was spoke so truly to it. Not in exact way. Of course, obviously, I could boil it down a little bit more. But I remember getting there and being like, yeah, like I, I'm, I'm Burmese. Like I connect. And, and I am. 
of course, identity is important. But then I remember getting there and being like, yo, like I don't know shit about Burby's culture. Like I, I, I didn't grow up here. So like my connection with, with, with being Burmese was so much more of like, not an abstract thing because I had the food, I had my family, I had temple, all these things, but I didn't grow up in the country. So it was this whole kind of new learning experience for me. And it was, it was really tough. Um, I spent about five, six months there and I was working actually with this couple restaurant companies. And that was really when it kicked off my like industry work, I would say, cause yeah. I had worked in restaurants before, but then that's when it, because I had graduated university and I was like, what am I going to do? And I was like, okay, restaurant work, industry work. This seems like the path. And, oh, sorry, beer burps. Um, so then I was there for about six months and then, you know, I just felt very out of touch. I didn't feel like I had, I mean, I didn't really, I was living with my family and stuff, which was great, but like, I didn't really have friends and I was kind of just working and I didn't really know where I wanted to take things. And I was just kind of college. I was just like, I went from a small town to a big, big town and I was just drinking all the time. And I was just, I didn't really feel like I ever, you just felt like you weren't progr- progressing? Yeah, I didn't feel like I, I connected too much with necessarily the work I was doing, even though I knew that I could be good at industry work. Okay. Um, and this was taking the shift from the years earlier where I had worked in kitchens to now working front of house. Yeah. Um, and it was also a weird experience because I remember getting there and being like, oh, you know, I'm American. Here's my resume. I'm 22. Like, barely know how to tie my fucking shoes. And they were like, well, here, you can help us assistant manage this restaurant. And and it's interesting because I think I've found this in Asia in a lot of places where there's this sort of like, you, you see this division in sort of like just being able to speak English well and just being able to, I think, communicate and all these things. That already puts you at such a huge advantage for work out here. And I remember feeling like 22, not knowing what the fuck I was doing with working in a restaurant, managing a restaurant, let alone. Yeah. And being like, the only reason I'm here is because, I, I, you know, again, I, I talk good. Like, that's it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and I connected, and I, and I, but I managed to connect with a lot of people I was working with. I was there. I, my Burmese got a little bit better. I, I managed to find out about, you know, food that I had never tried, all these things. So it was important for me. But I think at the time, it was one of those things where I didn't realize how important it was until after I left it. Of course. I mean, that's usually the case, right? Like right. You typically leave it and then... Later on, does it come back to you that that experience has kind of paved the way for a lot of what goes forward yeah. in your thinking and everything else? For sure. I mean, yeah, it's the same. It's like you get broken up with. You, you can cry about it for a bit. Of course. It takes probably like a year later. You're like, oh, I learned some shit yeah. from there. Um, but yeah, so then I moved I moved to Seattle right afterwards. Yeah. My good friend group. So you went, you went Washington yeah. State. Then you went from Washington State to Burma. Yeah. Burma to Seattle. Se- Seattle's still in Washington State. So okay, Seattle yeah. is, uh, yeah, it's 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 not the capital of Washington State, but of it's course. But I mean, well like you did right. that whole loop to come back. Pretty around. much the whole loop, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So I. Um, so then you went and collected your stuff from storage and moved to. Seattle. Got my stuff from storage exactly. Moved to Seattle again, and then I had this new thing where I knew I had some friends in Seattle, but all my friends had grown up in Seattle. I didn't oh, know okay. Seattle like they did, you know. So uh, now a new another new environment. Another new environment, exactly. And I got there and I remember my first week I was living in this neighborhood called Capitol Hill. Shout out Capitol Hill. It's the fucking best. Um but 
I was walking around and I literally just had a stack of resumes and I popped into a few different places. And uh, so you still wanted to do the whole restaurant thing? Yeah, I still did. I still did. And I, but I wasn't sure if at this time I was like, yo, I cooked in college. I did a little bit of front of house experience. You know, I've got, I've got a couple things under my belt. Like, which direction are we going to take this? So then I moved. And then I guess now we're getting into my like restaurant lineage. That's cool because that's got like yeah. I'm, I'm I'm actually very curious. I guess this is the beginning of the current. Right. Exactly. So this is kind of where the wine thing. I guess now you before you're just getting a little bit of background information on my personal life, but now um, yeah. So two thousand. So, you, so you've kind of so to sum up thus far, right? Yeah. And to kind of keep it on the topic of the wine situation, sure. right? So my understanding is you did the whole, you had a little bit of wine. You were mostly a Mexican freak in France, clearly. Yeah, I don't <laughs> know why I said, I, I think this, I said tequila simply because uh, that the meter stick of tequilas, but I, I drank, I, I drank everything. I drank I, a lot of course, wine I know. But <laughs> I, it's funny because the, of course, all the fucking things in France, you know, the beautiful chateaus, all this stuff. And what the I remember things is that the you right now that you could go back and you could have told your younger self, yo, this is the stuff you should probably be trying. Yeah. Drink the champagne. Champagne and ramps, not the yeah. fucking yeah, the, the, the meter log sticks. Stick, 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 exactly. So you you, yeah. you did the whole French thing, and then you can't you made that decision to do the whole wine schooling, uh, the wine growing, right. uh, the venter viticulture, viticulture enology, yeah. Um, so you decided to do that, then gave up on that. Did the whole philosophy, fashion philosophy, graduated philosophy. You then did an internship obviously early on before that after france yeah restaurant then post your degree you then did another situation of restaurants in burma yes and then now you've come back and now you want to continue doing cooking or did you kind of that's yeah that's that's kind of exactly the 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 crossroads i reached when okay. i got back in so you didn't even you didn't even come back and want to do somming or anything no you know it's funny i was i remember in uh I remember in, in Myanmar, we had the wine situation there is, I mean, I don't know how it is now. I could probably talk some shit, but I'm not going to. But, you know, everything takes is some time any, to grow. Is there, is, there, is there even wine in Burma? Yeah, there's, there's export. There's, well, I, there's I, I, that's if like, I'm not wrong, I think there is wine in Thailand. Growing, you mean? Yeah. Or like importing? Growing. Oh, growing. Yeah, but it's... I mean, uh, yeah, no. I, I haven't tried any Taiwan. I won't say anything before people rip my fucking head off. But Burmese wine is shit. I'm sorry. Also, because it's, like, it, what, hang on. But the bur- when you say Burmese wine, it's grown there. It's grown there. And uh, what what's the what's the uh, situation? They're mostly reds or whites. Yeah, or? it's just. But the thing is, it's like it's what people kind of expect people to want. So like, they grow Cabernet. Uh, we'll come back. I think we'll come back to this. Right, right, because right. Because I'm very curious. For sure, for sure. But let's get to how you ended up in that certain circumstance. Absolutely. Is, well, you you did the whole restaurant thing. So 2016, I'm back in Seattle. Okay. Um, I'm back in Seattle. I was living in Capitol Hill. I moved in with my buddy Dylan, who's still one of my best friends to this day. Um, and we moved we moved into this neighborhood called. It used to be nothing in Seattle, and then it and then Am, and then it became Amazon Country. Yeah. So, you know, we were staying at a hundred year old building, which is pretty much a one bedroom apartment, probably paying like fucking two grand a month. Yeah. It was ridiculous. Um, but you know, we were kind of just making, making our way. And I, I was working at two restaurants at the time. So I, I started working for this restaurant called anchovies and olives okay. as a cook. Um, I was working there four days a week. Um, and, and I was not equipped ready to, I was not ready to cook in that restaurant. I was not. What, what do you mean? I, I was, did not have enough skill at all. And so, it was, but they still hired you. They did. The head chef, um, uh, but, always a nice guy, but I, I, I don't think that guy gave a fuck ever. 
ever give like, a single fuck. Like, no, but I feel like, <laughs> but I feel like the the logic that I, I I would kind of go with. And I was talking to a couple of people, and I said I wanted to do my spot, right? Right. Which would have been my main thing with hiring any bartenders or any chefs or any front of house is you can kind of you what what typically happens and what I would think should be a position most businesses, especially in the industry, should take is personality. If you have sure. a personality, I can teach you. If you have passion, I can teach you. Right. Just because you have skills isn't the reason I would hire you. For sure. You can be the craziest best chef, but hey, here's the thing. If I don't want to work uh, with you, yeah, then yeah. Yeah. And it's it's about creating a team, right? For sure. You can be the best bartender in the world, but if you can't communicate with a customer, what am I gonna do with you? You can make an amazing like old fashioned or whatever the customer may order a highball. <laughs> yeah. But uh, if you can't if you can't get the customer to come back then that's pointless. So my point is, what would he? Would he? Did he? Did he just not care, or did he actually like? Yeah, maybe. Maybe it's not to be say too much care. I think maybe. Maybe I'm. I'm sure he's doing great things now and stuff. Um, well, I guess maybe I'll try to. Maybe like things people always go through different parts of their life and stuff too. But what it felt like at the time was he was just like, oh cool, I got another guy. You know, bring him on, whatever. Sort of checked out. Um, and I remember coming on because, so I worked with a few guys, Cody, Mark, Evan, Nick, you know, these names, they're not really meaningful unless these guys hear it, but I know that they didn't like me when I first started working there because I was not, a, I was, I was constantly messing up. I was constantly messing up. I was not to the level that they were hoping that I would but, be. But when you, when you say you were constantly messing up, were you making the same mistake consistently? Oh yeah, or, yeah, yeah, for oh, sure. What? For sure. Yeah. I was like, I was I was trying to learn from my mistakes, but I also... When you were in Burma, were you cooking or were you just front of house? No, just front of house. So I was like... And I thought I had the chops, but a lot of it was... Um, a lot of it was... Did you try your hand in cooking in Burma? Not in the restaurants, no, but in no. general in your own house? Yeah, yeah, yeah I did. I've always okay. cooked. Okay, constantly cool. at home. I've always constantly cooked at so home. So I figured just your skills would have improved over time. Right. So they, yeah, they, they have. And, and I think that working at anchovies, it did. At first, it was very difficult. I know a lot of the guys didn't i mean at least had a hard time working with me it's yeah. funny now because they're some of my best friends in the world of course so the change that happened was you know i was cooking there during the week um and i was i was thinking i was i was gradually gaining things but i think also it was hard because you know these guys you know even in a new environment you want to be homies with someone but if it makes your professional life difficult then yeah of course you, you don't wanna, you don't want to be homies and have a terrible professional life and it, then absolutely. it'll all fall apart exactly yeah. and um and so I was, and I was bartending on the weekends at this Sichuan spot called. Wait, you're bartending on the weekends. So, so you, I was cooking four days a week, and I was bartending two days a week. Okay, so you had the one day off. Yeah, at least. I was working okay. six days a week. Um, is that is that is that mostly out of the fact that you needed to live rent wise and everything, or was that out of just passion? You really wanted to be in the industry. I mean, I I should probably have said the rent thing, but like, I was like, I was ready. I was hungry when oh, I got okay. there. I was yeah. like, I was. I was about to do everything. Like I wanted to cook. I wanted to fucking. I wanted to bartend. I wanted to work at a weed did shop even, in the morning you, so I could get a discount. Have, uh, <laughs> like, yo, it was wild. <laughs> did you Did you even have any bartending skills? A little bit in Myanmar. So was it was it was it when when you did the bartending thing? Was it as bad as the kitchen thing? Or no, bartending came nat more naturally to me. Interesting. Um, okay. Because kitchen cooking on a line. And okay, so this is probably the debate we'll get into. I, I'm sure that there will be interesting people that listen to this that are front of house, that are back of house. I'm sorry, front of house, but we don't work near. I mean, yes, we deal with shit. Yes, our work is different and taxing in its own ways, but we do not work the way fucking back of house works. Um, yeah, back of house is very. It is unforgiving. It is less pay. I mean, and everyone knows this shit also, but it's like. 
really back of house is less pay than front of house? Oh yeah, yo, if you're a server, you're a sommelier, you get I get I feel bad sometimes about the the rate of money I've been paid versus people that probably put in double the amount of time to make the reason people are there is the food. Right. Um and uh, and the and the and the level of berating and everything that goes on in the back is yeah. just hectic. And but I guess that's the thing too is when I got to Seattle, that restaurant, that was the first restaurant I worked in where no one was like yelling at me, screaming at me, all these things. Oh, really? People were like, I think, you know, they people were stern, but yeah, they, they were stern. And like, people would be like, yo, I'm disappointed because of this. Or like, you let me down on this, but it was never like, oh, that's shit, you're writing? shit. You're kind of fucked like this, whatever. It was, it felt more productive, yeah. even though, I mean, it's, it still hurt a little <laughs> bit, right? You know, you got to like, it, was it a casual dining restaurant? It was, it was casual fine dining. That's a lot of Seattle is like, yo, you're, you're going out, you know, you're not wearing, you know, you don't, you can probably go in. Cause I feel like casual dining would have been a little forgiving. Right. You go in, you got in a t-shirt and jeans, but like, you know, you and shorty are paying $150 a person. Okay. You know yeah, what I mean? Like with the yeah. wine, with the food, like it's, it's money. Yeah. Um, so I was doing, I was cooking pasta there and then I, man, I started shucking oysters there. That's how I learned how to shuck oysters, which like shout out best fucking skill uh, in the world. I mean, that's, that's a skill that really is. Yeah. It's, it's not easy. No, it's not. And that, that was one of the things that I think I, I, I kind of took away from it was the fact that in a lot of other restaurants, like this restaurant, they, 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 I guess they gave me the room to both be good and also to mess up. And you, you get both with, with the, you know, if someone gives you the autonomy, they're like, okay, it's you. You can either do good you or you can either completely mess this up or right. not. Yeah. So I, and I, and as things progress and then I, I pretty much stayed. So that restaurant that I worked with was part of a bigger restaurant company. And it closed eventually. And um, I'll say this about Seattle food scene. Seattle is an amazing city. It is, it's got, and this is not like a public service announcement or whatever, but it has some of the most awesome, inspiring chefs, industry people, bartenders I've ever met. But the problem is with Seattle is if you were to go there and you were to read whatever Yelp reviews to tell you this or that or this is what the, the press is about, you would never really know because you have about three chefs that own like 50 fucking restaurants in the city. Holy damn. Yes. So proliferation is putting it lightly. Okay. And, and the restaurant company I work for, you know, it's like, it's just like, it's, you know, it's this white guy from Seattle. He studied in Italy, I guess, you know, and he's got fucking 16 restaurants and, now there's so there's the first one he opened and and I'm not trying to talk too much ill because I have friends that still work for the restaurant company and I appreciate the opportunities the company gave me but it's less about the company and it's less the fact it's more about the fact that they hire really good people like really dedicated chefs really dedicated really unique individuals that are that most of them I've met along the way were really interested in helping better themselves and better people around them but at the same time, it's impossible to ignore the fact that it's just this fucking rich white dude making burrata sixteen different ways. And like burrata's great, dude, but I don't, uh, I don't, I don't want it yeah. fucking. I don't want it at every goddamn restaurant, you know. And that's the problem is you walk into Seattle restaurants, and I'm and I'm sorry, but you're getting fucking crudo. You're getting like some raw Italian style fish preparation. You're getting pasta, and you're getting like a piece of salmon that someone's probably gonna ask you to overcook. Um, and that's not all of Seattle, but I think that's that's part of it in its own way is that, and I've noticed this in Bangkok is as much as we have these cities that are like, we want to be progressive. We want to try all these new things. We want new, we want fresh, we want exciting. That is a great sentiment, but then sometimes you see that it doesn't always play out like that where people say they want that, but then at the same time, there's still like this 
this it's just this inability to not break outside of well a lot of people are stuck in this box right exactly um and i think that was part of the problem what i felt not part of the problem but i definitely felt that working in seattle so I worked with this restaurant. That, did you feel that that during that period? How long were you in Seattle? Yeah, so I was in Seattle for till I moved here. So, so like till the end years? of 2018. Yeah, so about about two years. So two years. So for uh, towards the was this a realization you had during the two years, or was this a realization towards, you had towards the end? Towards the end. Yeah. Okay. So and just to just to briefly summarize it, because it was such a big restaurant company, you know, I stopped cooking, um, and then I started bartending for them. So I took over one of their was other that, bars. Was that just because of the cooking situation? Yeah, okay. there was a better situation. <laughs> but then the funny thing is I became a bartender. And then all my homies, Mar- shout out Mark, shout out Nick, shout out Cody, shout out Evan, some of the best cooks, some of the best dudes I've ever worked with. We became friends because okay. I, was, I was the bartender. Yeah. And I was a good bartender who was helping them with their work, well, with it's making like you work said, good right? rather yeah. than making their lives difficult right. you know what i mean yeah, yeah it's like exactly you said, like you you could become best friends now because professionally you're now separate i'm not fucking now. their lives yeah. up right. right exactly um so it became this really it was it was great um because we had this really tight-knit crew and like i said you know some of these guys these guys are still my best friends um but it allowed me i think to kind of flourish in a way that i hadn't before um bartending became Bartending became very big for me kind of at the same time where wine became a big thing for me. Okay. And this is, so this is 2016 and this is, is that that because when you were bartending through that two year period, you're trying a lot more stuff. So what it, what it, what it started was, and yeah, so I was, so I was cooking at this restaurant, anchovies and olives and you know, I was cooking and it was sort of, I was like, you know, maybe it's probably better that I switch to this bartending position, but I was kind of, I was also feeling, I was like, you know, maybe I'm not, cut out to hack it as a cook um and then it comes back to this funny moment where i was like in the restaurant i was like well what can i do in restaurants and i was like i can always go back to wine i was like i can always go back to wine i guess i mean whatever going back to it means you know i didn't really know anything about it but But surely surely going back into wine right and i mean i assume going back into it is you're going back into becoming a psalm or something it was so it was in in i guess going back into just wine in general but then i remember being like and if I don't, I, I this is so fucked up because I really don't remember what if there was a specific moment that sparked it, but I remember going to work one day towards the end of me cooking in this restaurant, and being like, "Oh, I, I'm gonna study how to be a sommelier." But uh, so, but hang on, okay, so you actually went to psalm school? No, I mean, kind of. So sommelier school works interestingly. It's not a requirement, um, but again, to put it in the timeline because. So this is 2016, finishing like my cooking part in this restaurant company. But then they were like, you know, what's what's your next move? And I was like, oh well, I'm. I was like, oh, I want to study to be a sommelier. And this was a very, I didn't really know what it would take. I just knew that I was like, oh, I'm gonna have to learn about wine, drink wine, and study wine. And like, I, I've done this before. Like, I can do this again. Um, of course, I didn't know everything going into it. Um, but this is when, and I'll introduce a few people in the story here. I hope this is not like too all over the place for people to kind of follow it. No, I think I think we've kind of got that timeline. Like now we're in 2016, post your graduation. Right. You've now left the whole anchovy, not left anchovies, but you've left the kitchen. Yeah. So I've and left now the you're kitchen. Front of house bartending. Exactly. So front of house, and it was kind of attached to this little Italian place called Barcoto, which was, um, yo, if anyone listens to this, and they were the Barcoto days. So those are my favorites because I I was running that bar. I had regulars. It felt very very my home base for a long time. Wait, um, so you just like rocketed to being coming the head bartender? 
Pretty much. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, pretty much. Um, because I had been bartending at the Chinese spot on the weekends and stuff. And and I like to say that I think... How's the whole taste bud situation work then? Do you get to like taste everything in there and then kind of like then start recommending stuff? Is that like... For like wines? No, for, for just, well, just in general, everything. Because like what I've noticed is some spots, they don't so much let you try stuff. Like, uh, there's a spot in Singapore called Le Maison de Whiskey, and I was talking to a couple of people about that spot because they were telling me about how it, when it first opened, um, all the bottles on the shelves and everything was, like, just full. Like, you couldn't try it, you know, unless you were a customer, right? Right. So this bar staff couldn't try it, so the bar staff couldn't really sell. Yeah. But then the new situation, I think, with a new, not management, but the guys that came in, they then changed policy, and they were like, well, look, Try it with the customer, and then you can at least try and sell it because you're tasting it. Right. You're kind of getting those flavors and so on. So I guess like my, my main question to you then is bartending and everything in your Chinese spot's great, but then when you're coming into this uh, spot next to anchovies, did they allow you to kind of sample things and then try and upsell to the customer? Yeah. And do they kind of give you that level of freedom where it's like, look, you create the bar menu, you kind of can sell XYZ to the customer, and did all that chefing and everything that you've had from the pe- previous years kind of help your taste buds pick up the small, minute little bits and pieces. Like, obviously, smokiness is an easy thing. But when you're starting to describe cherries and, you know, the berries that actually go into, say, a whiskey or an oak or, you know right. what I mean? Yeah. That was, yeah, you know, I've been lucky because, and, I, and it comes back to good mentorship. A lot of people will work places and you'll work and you'll learn, but you will never have a good mentor. Yeah. Um, and so I guess that's the main thing. Yeah. Right. For me, it started, I would say this was to the, yeah, in Seattle. And when I was working at anchovies, there was a manager there named Lucas. Um, and he always let me try everything. I think that was one of the biggest things. Does this even when you were back at house? Yeah. He was like, yo, if you want to try wines, like if there's a bottle here, I'll sell it to you at cost. So you can take it home, drink it. At least that okay. way, you're not. Oh, so, so you kind of almost kind of, can enter into that psalm life exactly. very so i was i was you know that's how it started i was drink i was bringing home bottles i was drinking my friends just googling information reading it out to them and it became this thing where it became a really great centerpiece of my friendships interesting cooking okay. food um like i said you know i just had the sundays off so my sundays were spent i'd cook food for all my friends we drink wine sorry we drink wine and we just hang out. It became a very social staple for me. Okay. Um, and my whole friend group, you know, no one drank wine. You know, we're millennials. Like, we're not really, you're not really equipped with like, oh yeah, go out, have fun, drink some fucking wine. You well, know that's what I mean? why I'm, that's why I'm curious. Like when you when you were bringing the wine home and you were kind of tasting it, did you, were you hitting the notes that you found online? As in, because you know when you go to wine tastings, sure. like you know what I mean. Like they're like, oh, it's cherry, and then everyone in the group, which obviously nobody goes to a wine tasting because they want to do wine tasting, right, right. They go because of, the, and then someone yells, oh, this cherry, and then everyone's like, oh, there is, cherry. of course it's cherry, yeah, for sure. So um, was that was that was that kind of your situation, or was it? What, were you really educating yourself as you were having these? I was really, really trying to educate myself. I remember I was trying to like, in the moment where it made this big connection was, you know, I, w- I was bringing home bottles and I was moving to front of house and. And, and this became my main gig. So we can kind of look at this restaurant group now over the next two, two years, for 2018. While we talk about this, I, I, I'm working for this restaurant group, if anyone's wondering what I'm doing in this yeah. two-year span. Um, almost entirely serving, bartending, bar managing. Um, but during this time also, of course, because you know one job is never enough for me in Seattle. I always had multiple jobs. Oh, interesting. Okay. I started working with this guy named Owen Kotler. And 
talking about mentorship, probably one, and we'll talk about Vlad in a bit, who's, these two are probably my greatest mentors in my life. Okay. So Owen um, was originally, originally from New York. He and his partner opened a natural wine import company in Seattle in about, I think, 2015 or 16. And I remember because 2016, I was working in this Chinese restaurant um, at the bar and um, a bunch of these guys came in and they were like, oh yeah, these are all wine importers and they're having a wine dinner. Remember the, the owner told me this. And I was like, cool. And they left a bunch of bottles for us. And they left a bottle of... So all these bottles that they left were for you guys to try? For us to try, yeah, for us to try and drink. And I remember pouring it in my glass, and I was like, this wine is fucking orange and cloudy. I was like, what the fuck is this? And it it was a bottle of wine called Denavolo, um, which actually we have here in Bangkok. Um, I think, I don't know who imports it. Shout out to them. But I remember pouring it in the glass and being like, I've never seen this. Like, what? What is this? And the guy came, and the owner came, he's like, yeah, you know, this is Owen's Wines. He works in, like, natural wine. I was like, what the fuck is natural wine? Was it natural wine a thing in the States at that time? Or was it just starting? It was just starting. Oh, interesting. In New York, you had it. Because New York always has got it. Yeah. But Seattle, because Washington State has has its own winemaking. But it's not natural. There's almost no natural winemaking that occurs in Washington State. Okay. So obviously that's why everything's important. Exactly. So everything that people are used to are these really big 16% alcohol Cabernet blends that have 100% new oak. People are very used to a specific style. So it took a while for natural wine to kind of take off. But I remember pouring this wine. um, Is that that, that when you say it took a while for natural wine to take off? Sorry to sidetrack. No, no, it's okay. Is that is that a reflection of the psalms in the city being reluctant to kind of push it on the customer? For sure. Okay. For sure. I think also because, it, again, coming back to that thing of playing it safe in Seattle. There's a lot of places where people don't want to be challenged. Where I remember where there was a there was a restaurant where we had a California cab, but it was the most different. It was, you know, it was just different. It was lighter alcohol, no new oak, but it was still California Cabernet. And I remember being like, we can't put this on the list because someone will order it and they will get violently upset because it's not exactly their definition their very very narrow definition of what they think this wine is supposed to taste like okay so so because everyone has something in their head of what wine a lot of the diners do right exactly but i also but then that's also the onus is on us to try and you know push it a little bit more so then but then again also you're not going to make anyone love anything by forcing it upon them you have to it's a gentle, well, it's a gentle process. It, well, it's like it's like I was saying to you earlier. I've I've always thought that being a, well, like a chef or being um, or like a bartender or a sommelier, especially with the relationships that, that you develop front of house, right? Being a head chef or being a som or a bartender, being front of house, you would develop those relationships with those customers that they would then begin to trust you and your judgment. I assume, yeah. And then it's not really forcing it on them. But they kind of leave it open to you, for sure. In which you can kind of gently, I guess, move them towards that situation. Absolutely. And um, that's why that's why I figured that the and I said earlier was I figured that the situation for the natural wines was mostly the psalms themselves, not really being so, um, in like filled with courage to push it just because, for sure. or even know. just being enthusiastic yeah. about it um, until it became this you know, force that it kind of is today. Yeah. And it's funny because I remember, and for people that listen to natural wine, or sorry, for people that are listening to this podcast that drink natural wine, one of the first natural wines I ever drank was Frank Cornelison's Magma. 
and just for those that don't know Sinatra Wine, this is perhaps maybe one of the most coveted culty winemakers in the natural winemakers in the world. Whether you, li- whether you like him or not, it's up to you. Um, but why is that? A few different reasons. So when natural wine started getting big, Action Bronson was a big like, yo, like I'm I'm into rap and I like eating food and I'm all about New York and shit and munchies and vice and all this stuff. And it was very like, you know, at that front of that like hipster journalism, like very like clickbaity food, kind of like, God, like, you know, with this very funky scene kind of thing. And I remember watching back in the day because Action Bronson had a tasting with this winemaker on Munchies. It was like, we're going to taste through all these crazy wines. And I remember being so upset because I was like, I'm so excited to watch this. And then Action Bronson comes out, and he's smoking a blunt during the entire wine tasting. And I'm like, I love smoking blunts. I like Action Bronson's music. I like Frank Cornelison's wine. You put them all together in the same place, you're not getting anything out of anything. You know, if you're smoking a blunt while you're tasting wine, you're not fucking getting the wine. I'm sorry. You know, I mean, maybe if it's a, if it's a pairing, I don't know. This is some next level fucking pairing shit, <laughs> That's though. Like you know a crazy what I mean? Pairing. This is like a this is a Dutch Masters um, uh, roll on the outside with a little bit of a grape Kush on the inside. Should pair really beautifully with this Northern Rhone Syrah. <laughs> Actually, that is not that's not a bad, bad pairing. There you go. That's a free one for y'all. Um, there you go. But yeah, it, it, um, I think that like in terms of in terms of natural wine, in terms of what it, it, the thing is, it, the reason why it blew up so much was because this is this winemaker. He was making wine in Sicily. You know, it's this very kind of remote place. It's volcanic. It's really intense. But I remember drinking that first wine, Magma, which is like, it's an expensive bottle. It's his most elevated cuvee. And I remember not getting it. I just remember being like, this tastes like a Band-Aid at the bottom of a pool. And maybe that was, I mean, maybe now if I drank it, I would have enjoyed it more or I don't know. But I remember at the time being like, is there something wrong with me for not liking this wine that I'm supposed to like in natural wine? So this is my first thing. I was like, oh, my God, like I work in natural. Um, I just started I just started working with Owen. You know, I just started essentially I was pretty much just delivering wine for him out of the back of my fucking Subaru. Um, and I was like, but do I even like this stuff? Like, I don't even know if I really even like natural wine because the stuff I've had is just crazy intense. And I just couldn't connect with it in the way that, you know, maybe I drank a fucking Merlot would be or whatever I, I thought my idea of it was. So. With Owen, the best thing was that he just is like, oh, I'll just tell you everything. He's like, you want to come to the tasting with me with some? He's like, you listen to whatever you want. He's like, you want to ride in the car with me while I just tell you stories about wine and stuff? Like, here you go. Um, and you want to taste stuff? You want to take stuff home? Do it. Like, the only thing is you just have to study the person who makes it. And that was huge for me because, you know, I, 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 like, I, I always emphatically had his and Molly, his partner, support Um and they knew that I was learning. That's so much of it. But they were always patient with me, always willing to bring me into their world. Um, and it was great because as I got more and more into natural wine, I realized how respected Owen and Molly are in the community still to this day and how they had such a huge impact in making the natural wine seem possible. So, and it's funny because when people ask me, like, oh, you've been working natural wine for like four years now. But it's like, it took me, it, it, not that it took me a while to get it, but I think it took, you know, the right avenues, the right things kind of unlocking for me to be able to find the things that I really enjoyed about it, the things where I could connect with. And yeah, now I'll drink Magma. I mean, I don't know. I haven't drank it since then. Maybe it'll still taste like Band-Aids, but, you know, I think that at least now it's like, uh, and and it kind of comes more into what I've done recently, but the I don't want anyone to think that my foray into natural wine was a given that I drank a first bottle of whatever carbonic, yeah. crunchy, glue-glue red, and I got it all of a sudden. Because it's not the case. 
And it's not with most wine, especially I think with people that are so used to drinking conventional and traditional wine. Which is what Seattle was at the time. Right. And then going into trying to introduce natural wine to people. So, um, so, when, so, so Owen was pretty much your first serious mentor in this whole Psalm exactly. situation. Yeah. And I started working with him fall of 2016 okay. and the whole time I, I was working with this restaurant company, Ethan Stoll restaurants. Um, I was working, I was working with Owen for a while doing delivery, but then also, you know, I was, I was working with Owen, but then I also started working more on wine specifically. Like I worked in a tasting room in a winery in Woodenville. So Woodenville is about 45 minutes outside of Seattle. Uh, is it still part of the same group or? No, no, different, different group. Oh, so this is yeah. you literally doing a whole other whole job. other job on the side, and I would okay. work at the tasting room on the weekends. And exactly like you said, most people don't go to don't go to wine tasting to taste wine. They yeah. go because I brought all my sorority sisters, and we're gonna drink Cabernet and get <laughs> fucked up. Like everyone brought their sun hat. It's rosé all day. Yeah. So like that's pretty much that's the Cause, shit. Because generally speaking, I, everyone I've ever spoken to that's done a wine tasting, they just get fucked up. Yeah, they 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 <laughs> never they never do the whole spit in the bucket thing. Yeah. They literally look at the bucket and then they swallow. Right. They're like they're like no no we're we're not wasting. We're here this. to enjoy <laughs> ourselves. Yeah, but it was funny because it was such conventional winemaking. You know, it was like I remember getting toward the winery and there was a lab where you know the guy would be pouring tartrates and tannins and sulfur and all these fucking things. Where the more I worked in it, I was like, I was like oh I was like maybe I don't get some of the flavors of natural wine. I know for a fact that this is not the kind of wine that I want to be drinking. Where I watched why why was that? Because I watched this guy dump maybe a fucking a whole bucket's worth of powdered tannin. What, what's tannin the... essentially, you know, when you drink red wine and it kind of grips your palate. It's like okay. the thing that plays with fat nicely. That's why always people say red wine with steak. Oh yeah, okay. tannin I've is kind of like in Coca Cola or like dark tea. It's kind of like it's okay. not bitter, but it's like astringent. Yeah. So you you have that naturally, like. All this shit naturally occurs in grapes, but okay. this guy was just dumping fucking buckets of it into the wine. Interesting. And I was like, that for me, it's like, is there like, is there a reason that someone would do such a thing? Yeah, because then you get you get more tannin, you get that that ooh that structure that beefiness that people. Oh, this want. is hence back to the chemistry that they teach you when it comes to exactly. So that's that's then it comes full circle. Then I was like, that's why I had to learn. Like they wanted me to learn organic chemistry these things because what you're doing is essentially the winemaking process of conventional wine in Washington is manipulate, manipulate, manipulate from the moment that the grapes are harvested. All the vineyards are they're irrigated, meaning that there's water sources added to them in a region where it's not environmentally sustainable to irrigate like that. Um, so could you say these like uh, grapes are not non-organic and yeah they're no yeah they're super no, or rather or rather not sustainable pesticides sustainable. herbicides because the thing is is as much as we love to think of Seattle as this beautiful hippie city Washington State is a big fucking state and as soon as you drive across the mountains and get to the eastern side where I went to the university it's 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 Trump country it's it's old white rednecks that all own the wineries and. They're very conservative about agriculture, and unfortunately, conservative agriculture means just perpetuating the bullshit, essentially, yeah. and fucking the earth as hard as you can. And then they sell the grapes to the western side of the state. So okay. it all gets trucked over, and then the wineries are in Woodenville. And so you worked at this winery? I worked at this winery, yeah. which I, I will not name, because again, I had friends there, and yeah, yeah. You know, I'm not trying to bad, bad blood, but it no, wasn't the fucking wine. It, was, it wasn't, I remember being like, this is not what I want. This is not yeah. the wine. But I learned a lot So this from, kind of, this this comes back to you then having tried that natural wine and then kind of uh, beginning to understand. Right. Exactly. Kind of like 
why maybe if I wasn't getting the flavors, maybe at least why it was important that I was tasting grapes because that was the biggest thing. I was like, yo, I drink that. I remember buying a bottle of wine and I remember drinking it and they were like, yeah, you pop. And I remember being so upset because I was like, oh, like it just tasted like vodka. It was just so alcoholic. Oh, wow. It was so watery. There wasn't much flavor together. And they were like, yeah, you probably should have waited five to 10 years. And I was like, you're making wine to drink in fucking 10, 15 years from now. I was like, I get it. Like great wine ages for yeah. sure. I mean, not all, not all great wines, but some great wines age. But how can you wait? So if you purchase the bottle there, you shouldn't open it for 10. Yeah. They were, they were just like, Oh, you probably should have waited. There was our new release. And I'm like, but then why did like, why so would you're it be telling me, you're telling me that you have got a bottle of vodka. That's pretty much going to take the next 10, like a decade yeah. to have all the flavors come together. I was like, I'm sorry, but that's not, I was like, that's bullshit. Yeah, because, I mean, that doesn't make sense to me because if you're if you're a winery and you're selling, right, or just like any business, right, right. your consumer is coming in to pick it up and almost consume immediately. Yeah. Like, you don't go to McDonald's and then wait t- tomorrow to eat your burger, right? Right. Or whatever place. Like, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, I assume, wouldn't they just have done the situation where they would have put all the new releases into whatever storage space that would be perfect for that bottle to be stored in? wait 10 15 years and then start selling that as the new release and that would be perfect for you to have right off the spot and you're getting the flavors that we want you to have yeah and not you having opened the bottle and then being like what the fuck <laughs> right i guess like, the only answer i have to that is um that just the mixture of wine and capitalism is one hell of a drug uh, clearly because <laughs> <laughs> that's what blew my mind when you said that i was like i was like wait they're telling you to wait yeah. they're, they're expecting you to wait to you for your investment of whatever it was right i just remember being shocked i just remember being like this doesn't fucking taste like grapes and i was like it says cabernet on the bottle but it doesn't taste like I it i still can't believe that they straight up told you wait 10 15 yeah. years to, for the money that you spent right and i was like this is a fucking 60 dollar bottle of wine i was like i'm fucking you know i might as well make it's a, a 600 bottle 60 dollar bottle oh, of wine. i was like i might as well make a goddamn sangria out of it while i'm fucking at it you i know mean that would have that would have probably been way more productive with that bottle right right so, so you you owen owen's allowed you well owen knows you're doing this job and everything and he's very happy for you to do that and yeah so you know i told owen i was like you know because that's funny i, I, I wanted, did he recommend that that vineyard? no he absolutely because he fucking hates conventional winemaking he fucking oh he's huge on the natural he's huge on the natural owen only does natural wine so i was working with owen and then i was also doing working in this winery so separately. Hang on. When, when you're working for this group right this group mostly was pushing began because you like you said in new york it was there in washington state it was beginning and everywhere else in the states it was beginning the natural wine situation right yeah so just to clarify also so three separate entities at the time so you you have owen who's my mentor who i'm working with as a delivery guy okay delivering natural wine that's the natural wine focus i have my day job essentially part of of this bartending which is that restaurant company yeah and then on the weekends I know. I don't even know how, many, how much I have so much fucking time to be able to do I'm all this. I'm also confused with your time. On the, on the weekends, insane. I would go work in this tasting room where it would be like hundreds of people would come through, birthdays, fucking whatever. You know, it's pretty much... Are you, are you, front, are you front of house for that tasting? Yeah, tasting room. You're, you're just you're pouring wine for people and shit, and it's just... Yeah. So this is... this is I guess this is... Confu- it, Seattle gets a bit confusing for me because I had my hands in so many things. But I guess the easiest way to summarize it is that the entire time I was working as a bartender for this restaurant company, I was also working in wine in a couple different avenues. The thing is that the tasting room only lasted briefly because I didn't like the idea of continuing to work in conventional wine. And my work with Owen just got stronger and stronger over time. And so you just you needed the time to be spent then with Owen. Right, exactly. And also because I think Owen, I mean, you know, I mean, I, he knew I was doing the other thing too, but I guess part of it was he was like, oh, 
he'll figure it out. Like, you know, he'll go yeah. do this conventional shit and he'll realize that maybe, I don't know, maybe that's what he thought, but that's exactly what happened. Cause yeah. I was like, fuck that. I was like, that's not what the wine I want to drink. That's not the wine I want to, you know. But, well, when you were drinking, when you previously, like when you're in France and then when you were doing your bartending job and you're having the wine in the restaurants and stuff, right? And you were living in Seattle and then obviously Burma and whatever. When you were having wine, did that, for that thought until you saw it ever cross your mind? Never crossed my mind. It never crossed my mind. Because the honestly, funny enough, I didn't even know all that shit went into conventional wine. Okay. I remember having, d- so Owen, when he first hired me, was like, come over for dinner. You know, we'll talk and, you know. You Did meet. you know when you were going to go work for Owen what he was about? No, exactly. So we came over for dinner and he was like, yo, do you know what natural wine is? And I was like, is it all How did wi-? you find Owen? Because he, he came to dinner and he, they left the bottles. Oh, okay. Yeah, so they came to, and I ended up just calling him. I yeah. was like, yo, I was like, I, I want a job. <laughs> so oh, that okay. was it. Yeah, so sorry, I should have said that. But so these guys, the Psalms, Owen was one of them, or one of the importer guys. Is he the one that left the bottle of that Magnum stuff? No, so he left the bottle of the orange wine. Ah, the first okay. orange wine I ever tried, which also happened to be the, the cloudy first one. natural wine yeah. I ever tried. It was natural, and it was orange, and it was cloudy. It was like all the, the trifecta of was craziness. This the, but this tasted better than that Band-Aid one, I assume. Yes, okay. yeah, totally. Right. Um, and I don't know, I'm sure Magma's better nowadays, but yeah, that was the whatever vintage. But anyway, so... Uh, so Owen was like, yeah, do you know what natural wine is? I was like, isn't all wine natural? And he was like, oh, well, let me just tell you, you know, here's, here's the facts. And I didn't even realize it, but uh, then it made sense. Exactly. Coming back to the whole like, oh, why did I have to learn all this chemistry? I'll have to learn all this math. And it's like, oh, because your job now is a chemist. It's not a, it's not a artisan. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a farmer. You're a fucking chemist when yeah. you're a winemaker in Washington. That's, not, that's what it sounds like. Whereas in, with Owen, he was showing me these wines that like, you pretty much have same day. Well, not same day, but you open the bottle and it's good to go. Yeah, I mean, yeah, but also the fact that it was just like, it just tasted different. It tasted like grapes. Yeah. It was, cr- and not even just like grapes, like the classic grapey flavor you think of, but it tastes like fruit. It tasted like, I remember at that dinner, um, we were drinking this Italian wine from Friuli, and it's like kind of like coastal region, like kind of along the coast there. Um, and he opened the bottle. I remember he poured me a glass and I smelled it. And I was like, yo, this smells like oysters, like being pulled out of the ocean. And he was like, yeah, it's from next to the sea. The vineyard gets the sea air and it has this saltiness, has this acidity to it. And I was like, I was like, what the fuck? I was like, how is that possible? And they're like, that's what terroir is. This idea that people are always kind of hunting for, like, ooh, is it terroir? Like, is it a hillside in Burgundy? And I'm like, it's not a, f- it's, it's like, it's so much less about one specific Grand Cru, but more about the idea that I'm like, if you get your grapes in Washington, I want it to taste like it was grown in the dry, arid, intense climate of Washington. I don't want it to taste like oak and powdered tannin and all these other things you add to it, um, even if it wasn't organically or biodynamically grown, which in itself is its own problem. Um, but I remember being like, this wine tastes like, A, where it's from, or at least the picture that's in my head, which I think sometimes is part of the whole wine thing, is being able to paint that photo picture to someone um and i just remember being like this is it was so good with food and that was the biggest thing for me too i was like i love cooking and i want to have wine that's good with the food that i want to cook and the occasions to have with my friends so then that's okay that's that's natural wine ultra and that started 2016 and as it progressed it became you know delivering a little bit more then it became pouring a couple bottles of wine for some friends of mine that had restaurants and selling a couple bottles to them and then it became you were still doing your 
bartending yeah job. still okay. doing the bartending yeah um and were the, you trying to get the natural wine into that group? yeah and so i brought natural wine some natural wines into the bar but then also it'd be like you know people come to the bar and they, they usually come for cocktails but then some people come for wines and um it was always a conversation that i was ready to have because if people would be like what is natural wine i'd be like but the, the wines i chose were all wines that were very approachable wines that'd be like oh this tastes like regular wine I'm like yeah that's the point but it's just this you know not something that's going to be like here's the band-aid good fucking luck you know what i mean rather like oh here's a rosé it's the same grapes but it's grown organically it's grown biodynamically and you know they don't add too much to it so that's just kind of the difference but it sort of supplemented my bartending you know i knew i was good at cocktailing and you know whatever you know i had people write about me all these things and it's not like i needed that but it felt like wine for me was this like bartending was great because it was like i had a guest that would come in a regular and i know what they like i make them a drink someone would always be like you know my friends would always be like you know make me whatever you like and then it got to the point where i felt like i, I wish i could extend that a little bit more yeah less not because not saying bartending isn't personal it's very personal and, and having that understanding of ingredients and knowing what people like is it's so huge. big yeah, yeah. And, I, and i love that about bartending because for me it kind of channeled that like the thing i loved about cooking of course but then being able to present it in a way to people at a bar that but then palatable in like one drink right and i think wine came back to this thing for me that i loved at the end that i loved the story of it or i loved how i could or i loved you the way it, it related to me yeah. yeah um and so then it kind of became part of my narrative of being a bartender as well is bringing natural wine into the spaces that I was working with. So then were you more a psalm in, well, I mean like in terms of your bartending thing, did you kind of shift slowly towards being more a psalm? I, not in the traditional sense. Um, in, in 2016, again, sorry, fuck to backtrack. Um, right when I'd started working with Owen, we were talking about psalm school. Um, just to preface this for those that don't really know the traditional sommelier world too well, you don't have to go to school to become a sommelier, but you can get certifications yeah, through. There's a levels. Yeah. To it, yeah. yeah. So there's the Court of Masters, and then there's the WSET, which is the Wine and Spirits do, Education. Does any Trust. of this actually really matter? Oh fuck! Whatever I say next is going to get me in a lot of trouble. <laughs> well, with no, some I'm people. curious because uh, I mean, like, if you were, if say, for example, someone's coming up, right? They really do love wine, and they kind of have a great palate. For example, right? Yeah. And the only way to, I'm assuming, Psalm School gives you and these certifications kind of gives a certification to that palette sure i assume um and the breadth of knowledge that you would have right but in terms of getting a job at say a michelin star or even a casual fine dining it does it increase your chances or when someone sees your resume and they see those certifications would you say that they would go oh okay you do automatically know what you're talking about and they don't question anything else. They don't try and do like a wine test or anything like that. You know what I mean? For sure. So th are those certifications worth getting for someone that's coming into the thing? Or would you say your experience and kind of going up through your building up your resume by going to restaurants right. and stuff, would that actually be better? That's a great question. So, and of course. there's two different avenues. Yeah, take, like, right? like a true fucking philosophizing asshole. I'm going to give you a, like a multi- yeah. faceted response to this. So I would say it is for me, and this is something I always come back to. It's great to be an idealist about like, Oh, this is how the industry should be, or this is how the world should work, or this is how I would like things to be. But unfortunately, sometimes we have to operate in the systems that are already given to us. Um, yeah, totally understandable. And I would say that 
I don't think I necessarily got a job because I had the Court of Master's certification, but I would say that maybe that if you were, f I'm trying to think of the right way to phrase this. But the thing is, is it's, it's, um, because you didn't have a SOM degree to begin with. No, no. And, th and this is the thing, too. Is, and I but guess Owen I'll really educated you, and you kind of almost knew you already had that almost that first level. Yeah, kind of locked yeah. In and and, I, and I, I, took the first, I took the first course without really studying too much because I, I had remembered stuff from college, and I had read through stuff, and I, I had managed to actually pass my first quarter master's introductory really without too much hesitation. Okay. Um, but the thing is for me, and this kind of comes back to thing, and sorry, I mean, I mean, not sorry, but like I, it does, so it stems to a deeper issue, I think, of what it is in representation. And you'll probably hear me kind of touch on a few social justice things today, but the main thing is, is you look at wine. Wine has never really traditionally been about Asian, black, Latin, anyone else besides white European people. Of course, I'm not going to put a bunch of blame on this because where does most wine come from? Wine culture comes from white European cultures. Of course, yeah. But so at the same time, but I think though, when you look at anything, whether it's wine, whether it's a lot of different societies, being an immigrant, being someone that is from a different background, one of the, the, the easiest ways to assimilate, but is to prove your, I mean, maybe to, not prove that we have something to prove, but I guess it's like, you know, you, why in the US maybe you have a lot of Asian American people that become scholars or right. doctors, teachers, things that are so reputable and so good for society that no matter who you are, you're still representing something good. Yeah. So it's like, even if you know, you're know you a first generation immigrant from whatever country, it's like you're a doctor and, and people need to recognize you as that. Of course, okay. So I think that was part of it for me with the Psalm thing was that, oh, maybe the expectation wasn't that I looked or was like a traditional sommelier, but I could still do this. Yeah. Um, and maybe that, that would just add a little bit more emphasis to my passion. Yeah. Um, but then looking at it in another way too, is I don't think it is too necessary because I think I've spent a lot of time trying to not unlearn, but I think trying to reevaluate the lessons I was taught there. Um, in what, sir, in one sense, like what, what, what would be like a lesson that you unlearned that you relearned the actual fact that wine should, they taught me that a lot of traditional conventional wine would court of masters will teach you that wine is about typicity, like that wine should be about consistency. That if, if you taste a Syrah from, taste Shiraz from Australia, Syrah from Northern Rhone, you can smell it, you can blind it, you can guess it. That's Syrah. Right. Okay. But natural wine doesn't really work like that because I've had yeah. Merlot that, you know, doesn't taste like Merlot, quote unquote, because, you know, it, it's, it's the idea that you, you already have so many ideas in your head. The, the, there's already, you, you as a, a consumer, as a diner, as a drinker, it's impossible for us to not have preconceived notions. Of course, yeah. Especially when you, everyone's kind of grown up in society where wine has this specific affiliations and attachments or you have to have it with this and have to have it with this. I guess the biggest thing for me is that, not saying there shouldn't, is, is that there's too many rules is that part of it was that there was so much structure put around the idea of what learning wine and what wine has to be, rather than focusing on what wine can be. Um, and I simply, what I simply mean by that is, 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 is it's so boiled down to, like I, what I said, like this hillside in Burgundy versus you know, a hillside you know, a little further north, and rather than about what is the winemaker doing? What is the winemaker doing that is representing this hillside? A wine is not great simply because it comes from 
you know, fucking one part of France. Yeah. Um, it can be. Yeah, of but, course. But it doesn't, I don't think it does It doesn't that necessarily. necessarily. Yeah. And for me, the focus was never, was never about that. Um, and that was part of the problem. And I, and it, not everything needs to be this great, grand, you know, poetic story, but a lot of it for me was, was, well, well then, but then there needs to be an identity. Right. Like, what, what's, right. Yeah. what's the point of the wine otherwise? Like where, where is the identity? Where is the, 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 the human connection to it? Well, it's like food with cuisine, you know, totally. It, it comes from a rustic part of Italy. It doesn't come from a rustic part of Italy. It comes from a very refined area. The tomatoes used and the non, the tomatoes used in another area, like, it changes based on areas, and that's the way I guess wine should be. Right. But in in the sense of having had that degree in uh, in Psalm and everything, right? Mm. Did that impact? So you you've done 2016. You're with Owen and everything, and then you finally moved to Bangkok in 2018. Yeah. So okay. Then I'll just give you. So I, I was I was yeah bartending, working in natural wine. My commitment to natural wine got even more and more kind of over the years, and then finally 2018. So about two years later, this is the end of the summer of 2018, I was still working for the restaurant company, and I was like, you know what, I, I, just, I just think I'm done. I was, like, I was like, but you know, the craziest thing is I, I was working four days a week, I had three days off, I was probably making double the amount of money that I was making here working for a Michelin-starred restaurant. Yeah. And not money is everything, but I was perfectly comfortable. Yeah. But I just... grown. Yeah, yeah. But I was also just like... You know, what's next, man? Yeah. I was like, I was like, I don't, I was like, I don't, I don't want to be, I, don't, I was like, I don't want to be tending bar forever. And you don't want to be doing that situation, the same spot, same thing for right. the next like, five and, years. And, and the company I was working for, it was like, you know, it was good. It was good people I was with, but just, I didn't feel like I was, and I had been afforded growth for sure to be able to do a lot of these things, but I didn't feel like there was this, this thing that I could really sink my teeth into next. Yeah. So that fall, I literally messaged like, this fall of 2018, I messaged like three or four people on Instagram, winemakers in Oregon. Okay. And Oregon's, uh, so Portland, Oregon is about a three hour drive south of Seattle. Yeah. Um, still Pacific Northwest. Similar. Is, there, of, is it is it big one winemaking down there? Yeah. Uh, and, in, um, in terms of natural wine? So this is interesting is Oregon actually, the first Oregon winemaking started with the, the, Aire, the Irie, the Aerie family, E. Y R I E. It's okay. not the Irie family. They're not Jamaican. <laughs> uh, the Airy family, and it all started as this pretty much minimal intervention winemaking project. So is it, it w- is it natural? Yes, I, I I would say natural. I would say it's a very. And this is what we'll get into when we okay. talk more about like terms and everything too. But I would say yes, it's a great example of natural winemaking. But then you see how the lineage, the legacy of of that of that birth of winemaking in Oregon affects, you have so much more natural winemaking in Oregon. Yeah. So that's why I wasn't like, okay, I'll message people to do harvest in Washington. I was like, there's no fucking place in Washington that I want to work because they're not making the wine I want to make. So let me message people in Oregon. I messaged this winemaker, um, Joe Swick, shout out to Joe. He was like, yeah, dude, I can't really pay you. Like, You got a place you can camp out and we got an N64. And I was like, I mean, the N64 would have been the selling point. Right, exactly. He's, he's <laughs> like, yo, he's like, I hope you're a Mario Kart guy. And I was like, oh, that's fucking cool. Um, but at the same time, I was also like, "Fuck, man!" Like, you know, I pretty much like I, I didn't have a place to I didn't have a place to live at the time. Like, my 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 lease was up. I was sleeping on my homie's couch. Yeah. Um. So I pretty much had all my shit in my car. And my buddy Nathan was like, "Oh, yeah, my friend of mine is actually a good. Uh, is, she's an amazing winemaker. 
she doesn't really make natural wine, but she makes, you know, she works on a biodynamic vineyard, which means, you know, no herbicides, no pesticides. And she makes wine in a way where she's not doing too much to it. And I was like, cool. And he was like, the best part is she'll pay you. And I was like, that's fucking awesome. So for two weeks, I, I almost every few days, I would drive back and forth from Oregon to Seattle, making that three hour drive, interviewing, trying to find places to live, moving my shit. And, but it was great. You know, I, I actually went to the restaurant company. I was like, Hey guys, you know, I've had amazing two years. I, I need to go do this. And they're like, we completely understand. Like, go do your thing. So that was a very good send off at least. And I felt like I had a, at least left it on a good note because they understood where I was going. And then I, I drove down to Oregon. Um, I drove down to Oregon in the fall of a few weeks before my birthday. So September of 2018 to go work on a vineyard for the very first time ever. And I worked with this winemaker named Kelly Kidney. Um, and it was her 25th harvest that we were doing. So it's like super experienced winemaker. I mean, but 25th harvest, that's pretty new also. In 25, the well, 25 years. 25 years. Yeah, I mean, that's not one of like the old, those old French, you know. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Plus, French yeah. is like, you know, you got generations of generations yeah. of people doing it. So and this is still relatively first. Right. Yeah. Almost, it, yeah. It's a, that's a lot of American winemaking, yeah. though. It's, it's really the first generation of people that are making it. But, you know, and she was just. She was, I mean, just really a force of nature in how much wine she helps make every year because she doesn't just make her own project. She also helps make wine for like six other projects oh, wow. in okay. the Willamette Valley, which is really impressive. But her whole thing was that, you know, she wasn't adding too much shit to it. So it's almost, it's, it's not natural, but it's natural. Yeah, but it's funny because if you ask her, like, do you like natural wine? She goes, oh, well, I think, uh, you know, natural winemaking is just, uh, it's just, it's just a term for when a winemaker wants to be lazy. So it depends on who you ask, you know what yeah. I mean? Um, but whereas I'd have a lot of people that would be fucking up in arms if someone said that. Yeah. Um, but I, I learned, I mean, I worked probably, you know, it was long days. I remember it was, you know, in the bulk of harvest, we were working at least 12, 15-hour days. Um, and because, you know, you work until the fruit is, you, you work until you, ha you have to, do you work until, until you, you, would you, until you, I, I guess you work until everything is done. That's yeah. the thing is there's real no, like, all right, five o'clock, time to clock out and of go. Course. It's like, no, motherfucker, it's, well, it's, two, it's two, 2 a.m. and yeah. you're going to bring more fruit <laughs> in. Yeah, like it's, uh, it's proper hardcore work. It's, yeah. it's get your hands dirty kind of work. You For know? sure. And I and, and I was funny because I, I was, I've always grown up such a city boy. Um, you know, I grew up in D.C. I lived in Seattle and I've always liked nature, but I've always been a city boy. And uh, I remember going out there for my interview and uh, I was funny because I thought a selling point I was on. I was like, yeah, you know, I, I love wine and I'm just I, I've never made it, but I'm ready to be humbled by the process. And I remember she just looked at me and just fucking laughed. She's like, oh, you're going to be humbled by the process. Like, like you're going to be fucking humbled, my friend. Would you, would you say as a, as a person that's like a coming into being a psalm that doing that, because you've done now two vineyards, right? Like you've done the tasting room where you've been close to the vineyard, you've seen the process and everything, and now you're doing the actual vineyard situation, right? Where yeah. you're in the back. So would you say as a psalm that doing something like that versus say just saying it's just doing the exams and just doing tastings would you say actually going there doing the tasting room seeing the process of non-natural right and then going to something that's kind of biodynamic and everything and doing the hardcore vineyard work what would you say is a great way in which someone if you had to go back and do something would you say that that would be a path that you would take and you would suggest every other psalm take or would you say you can actually skip past all that? That doesn't really educate you as much. And you can kind of just go ahead and just do the exams, do the tastings, and you'll be good for life. 
Yeah. Like, did, that's that, this, I does mean, this that's significantly color your horizon of being a psalm? And when you tell, like, a young psalm coming up, would you be like, yo, you should definitely get yourself into a vineyard so you actually understand what's up? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I didn't realize, you know, it, it's, it's, it's funny how... And, I, and again, a lot of it is accessibility, too. I'm not going to say that every person that works in wine should drop everything they're doing to go work on a vineyard or do all these things because, you know, it depends on you know your financial standings, accessibility, all this stuff. But really, uh, was if I were to say something, you know, I think if I were to tell my younger self, I'd probably be like, you know, all the money that you spent on quartermasters, tasting, you know, do, buying wines, do the, the blind tasting masterclass and shit, I would have been like, save that money and go work harvest. What's the what's the significant learning, like things that you've learned, like doing the harvest? Man, it just fucking stuff that looks so when when it comes, especially when it comes to natural wine, because there's more transparency. You can taste, and especially if you've been drinking natural wine for a while, you can kind of taste. You you can see what it's all about. You're not hiding. There's no makeup. There's no cosmetics to to kind of cover up the wine you can see where either things went wrong or where they went right. I don't want to say went wrong because I think to like the imperfections make the exactly. Yeah. And I, and that's not even to be too poetic, but to rate a wine, I think is to, to deny it of its, of its personality. Um, Milan, who, you know, is one of my favorite people, you yeah. know, a great mentor of mine. Um, I don't want to try and replicate the Croatian accent, but just imagine that I'm saying it in this, in the beautiful way. And, and, and I told him to talk about blind tasting. He's like, well, to, to, to blind to, to you know to try and break down a wine on a grid is to like look at a beautiful person and to be like just just break them yeah. down you you don't you don't know anything about yeah. who this person is you don't know what what the real beauty is lying underneath and of course it's very poetic but I was like that's fucking perfect yeah. um I would have said yeah spend time working in a harvest working with winemakers because you see it at every step of the way and I think that there is a certain level of work of and I'm not trying to like glorify the like, oh, you know, the like hardcore like worker, you know, doing manual labor stuff like that because, but I, but I think that you, you, it creates this kind of like indivisible connection that you have with wine. That you can really start to place the pieces. Yeah. It makes, it just starts to make sense. It starts to. Would it, you say though, if, if, and sorry to cut you off, but no, like, no, no, would no, you say, would you say, because see, the, you, you've gone, you you're much more keen on the natural wine after having seen the conventional way wine's made. Right. So in which case would you say for someone who is keen on natural wine, go find yourself or at least attempt to find yourself a natural wine farm. If you're not, then get as close to one as possible. Like for sure. Yeah. But would you say someone that's into conventional wine, please, the first thing you do is go for a conventional wine vineyard a- so absolutely. you actually understand absolutely. what's going on. Absolutely. And for me too, I would never, never even tell anyone, if people like conventional wine, I don't want them. I mean, I would love to introduce natural wine to people that want to try it, but also at the same time, I'm not going to tell anyone that conventional wine is anything less than what it is. You know, it's not like, it's not, um, just in the same way. Like this is the thing is people love to, to, to try and make the world out to be a place where you can only have one thing or the other. And that's just not the fucking case. Yeah, of course. It's never the fucking we, we case. We have options for a reason. Right. And I think that the idea that you can have natural wine, you can have conventional wine that live in the same world, they're just two very philosophically and fundamentally very different things. Um, and I think the communities around them are totally different, just in the same way that 
old conventional wine heads might joke like, oh, you know, all these fucking hipsters drinking like funky juice and shit, which part of it's true. Yeah. Just in the same way that natural wine millennials are like, yeah, look at these fucking like, you know, blue blazer McCormick and Schmick fucks in ill fitting suits. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it gets thrown both ways. And in the same way that there's really shitty conventional wine, unfortunately, there's also really shitty natural wine. Yeah. Um, and that's not because it's, I don't know, but I, I think it depends on it depends on a lot of things. But it, it is it, again, it's not, it's neither black or white, and it's not the fact that just because something is natural, it's good, yeah, or tasty even. Because at the end of the day, too, is I like, mean, again, it's all about selecting correctly. Yeah, and also like you want to just enjoy what you're drinking. Like, I mean, I love a wine. And I have to think about it a little bit, but <laughs> I also want to fucking drink and enjoy it. You of know course. what I mean? Like, yeah. I mean, that's one of those things for sure. But. So you you've done this whole vineyard thing, and at what point at the vineyard did you then decide to leave? So I finished the harvest. I finished the harvest. Um, you know, all the grapes are brought in. So harvest essentially is you're pretty much har- you're you're harvesting all the grapes and you're getting them into the fermenters, so they can start fermenting. And then you essentially you put all the juice in barrel. Pretty much whatever you need to do so that all of the grapes are from the farm and then in the cellar doing what they need to do whether that's aging in barrel whether that's in stainless steel once everything is in your harvest is pretty much done and then it's just upkeep and management which takes a lot less labor but um but that after that i was like it was end of october and i was like yeah i'm gonna i'm just gonna head back up to seattle um and see see what i can do up there for a bit um but Right before I had left Oregon, um, I remember this, and I guess this is another very important part of the story because this leads to where we are now, is I was, I was in, so I, I was in Oregon. I was living in this town called Dundee, and the oh, only yeah. thing you need to know about Dundee is that its name is fucking Dundee. You can picture it. It's, yeah, one, it's one street. There's a bar called Lumpy's. Yeah. And every Wednesday is lump day and it's dollar cores lights me. and you can get a pound and a half hamburger where they put another pound of bacon on top of it. That's a solid good. fucking burger and yeah. it's a good place to drink beers after, after work. But it's also like, you know, I'm like, I remember going in there and being like, I'm, I'm, I'm the only Brown person probably for fucking like a hundred miles. Like, all right, this is weird. <laughs> um, or even slightly Brown. I'm the only fucking mocha caramel person for fucking distance. Um, God dang. But and I was living, and I was actually, I was living, in, it was a Craigslist find. And funny enough, wow. I'm actually still really good friends with the guy who was renting it to me, this guy named Kyle, who's still an epic winemaker, awesome winemaker. Okay. So it was great because we were just making wine, you know, he was making wine in his own project, I was doing wine, and it just it was natural? super similar. Pretty natural, yeah. Like, all good sourcing, but, you know, he does, I don't think he would even want to call himself natural. It's wine. A just adjusting and everything. Yeah, I think yeah. I think what, also, he doesn't want to be pigeonholed either and have yeah. people think that he's just, like, super natty or whatever, um, or the labels that we kind of put on it. But it was super cool. I mean, when we get done, we just the same dude. Like, I would come home, and I would just see him on the couch, and he'd just, like, reach up with, like, a joint. And I'd be like, I fucking love you, bro. Um, <laughs> just, just very similar wavelength. Um and uh, and I was sleeping. I had the biggest room in the house, and it was the most depressing thing because I had the master bedroom in this fucking massive, old ass house in Oregon. It was super cheap, but the most ironic thing is I had the biggest room I've ever lived in in my life, and I had an air mattress and a suitcase, and that's it. Wow. Yeah. So I was sleeping on an air mattress for about two months, and I remember one day I woke up, and my aunt, who's lived in Bangkok for about fifteen years, she was like, "Hey, um." I don't know if you've heard about this chef, but he's got a chef's table show um, oh, wow. okay. called, and his name is Gagam. And I was like, 
oh yeah, I watched the episode like a few years ago. Yeah. Super fucking cool. And he was, she was like, yeah, like mom was like, I know you're a natural wine. They're opening a natural wine bar called wet. And I was like, oh, like that's fucking crazy. I was like, and, and my mom was like, oh, well, this is super cool. Like, why don't you come to Bangkok and check it out? Like, Your you mom know, lives in Bangkok? And my mom lives in Bangkok okay. now. Yeah, so, sorry. So when I was living in Yangon, she was there. And a few years ago, she moved to Bangkok. Okay. So she's always, she's been in Southeast Asia for the past, yeah. you know, half a decade or so. Um, And I was like, oh, yeah, like, fucking whatever. Like, yeah, sure, I'll come to Bangkok and, like, go, you know, meet this guy who's got a Netflix show and Michelin stars, world's, you know, you know Asia's 50, Asia's number one in Asia. I was like, no fucking way. I was like, this is cool. Like, thanks for sending this to me, but, like, yeah. no way, man. Come yeah. on. Like, get out of here. Um, but my family, they're lovely, and they're always looking out for me. So I was like, that's cool. Um, and so I gave, I, went, I drove back to Seattle after finishing Harvest, and um, I was just, again, chilling on friends' couches, not really knowing exactly what I was going to do. And then my mom was like, hey, you should come to Bangkok. Like, if nothing else, just come to Bangkok. Chill out. Chill. And I was like, oh, the cool thing is, Australia has a opposite harvest because it's Southern Hemisphere. Okay, so their yeah. harvest is in the spring. So I was like, maybe I'll just come to Bangkok and then I'll jet to Australia afterwards. Yeah. Perfect. So I arrive. So I guess, yeah, no. So now here we are almost to present day. This is about two years back. This is December 2018. Wow. Okay. I flew here literally three days before New Year's. Yeah. Uh, man, I think I fell asleep before midnight on New Year's. I was just jet lagged and fucking tired and didn't really know what I was going to do here in Bangkok. But I was like, cool, I'll reach out to people that are into natural wine. So yeah, things start folding on slowly. I meet Kim, who does Wine Garage. Shout out to Kim. Fucking love you. And he's always been the homie again since, since I came here. And then this name kept coming up. You know, like, oh, you know, you got you to gotta talk to Vlad. I went to a bad eatery. Met Julio. Julio was great. He's like, oh, you got to talk to Vlad. And I was like, man, like, who's this Vlad guy? They're like, oh, yeah, he's, he's Gagan Somoye. Um, you know, he's, he's, he's really big into the natural wine thing. I was like, oh, that's super cool. So I was like, but I'm sure he's busy as fuck. So I, you know, I asked Julia, I was like, maybe slide my resume to him, all this stuff. And then one day I was just on Instagram. This is like a couple of weeks of being here. And I like, I saw his account and I was like, oh shit. And so I, I added him. I didn't even message him. I just added him on Instagram. Um, and I, and this was when I moved here, I had started this fucking like, Ooh, like ultra, like business bartending and cocktails yeah. and wine page, had like a hundred followers or some shit. And I, I messaged him and he was like, like five minutes later, I get him. I, I didn't message. Him. I followed him. Five minutes later, I get a message back. He's like, "Yo, like, what's up? Like, uh, like you work here?" I was like, "No, like, I just moved here. Like, you know." Did you already up? give him your resume at this point? No, no, no. He had no oh. idea who I was, but he just saw my profile, like natural wines, funky beers, like whatever. Oh, okay. Yeah. And he was just like, he was like, "Oh shit, like, uh, like you like natural wine?" I was like, "Yeah." I was like, "I just moved here from the U.S. I just finished Harvest. Um, actually, I had a lot of people tell me to reach out to you because I know you're working on some projects. Like, I don't want to ask for a job." but I'd love to talk to you. He's like, yeah, like, come on by. Like, let's chat. Wow. It's crazy. Super fucking crazy. And I remember being like, I was like, I was like, oh, cool. I'm going to go, go at least see, maybe I can go have dinner there or something. Take the family. And I remember like, I put on like a nice shirt and shit. I just got my haircut because I had finished harvest and I had the fucking mane, bro. I looked like, I looked like fucking, I don't even know. <laughs> I, it was, it was long, bro. I looked greasy. I looked like a cow on backpacker. And my mom was like, you got to fucking cut that shit. <laughs> so I got a haircut and I show up and I got my wine key in my pocket. And this, you know, your this, wine key? Yeah. My, my wine corkscrew. Like I was like ready to go. I was like, oh, someone asked me to open a bottle. I fucking got this. And I see this like six foot two Serbian guy come over and he just kind of like points and laughs. And he's like, man, you already got the corkscrew. Like, you're fucking ready to go. And I was like, <laughs> oh God, this is so awkward. <laughs> and, and, and Vlad, the whole time he's like, he's just kind of like showing me around the restaurant. I'm like shaking hands with like a hundred different people. And I'm like, what, like, what's going on? Like, is this guy like interviewing me? Like what's, what the fuck is happening? Yeah. 
and you know, he shows me wet. He's like, yeah, this is a new wine bar. You might have heard of it. I was like, yeah, I've seen posts. And then he takes me to the cellar and he like gives me the wine list. And I was like, oh, okay. And I start like flipping through it. And he's like, do you know some of these winemakers? And I was like, I know a couple of them. I'll be honest with you. Like a few. Like one of them I, you know, helped import in the States. And he goes, oh, cool, 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 cool. Like, um, uh, like, yeah, you know, like when do you want to start? And I was like, oh, wow. I was like, what? Just right there. Right, and he's right he like, yeah, like you seem like you know you might like you're young, but like you know, he's like he's like you don't like to like do too many drugs or anything, right? I was like, no, 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 I'm good, bro, I'm good. Like, I handle my shit, and uh, and I was like, I'm not too much of a party animal now, anyways. Which of course I moved to Bangkok, and then <laughs> the first for a year I was like, fuck, I don't think I stopped drinking at any point. But uh, I was like, yeah, no, I got you, bro. And um, I remember I came back a week later for a wine tasting um, with one of the winemakers that was visiting. And you know, I hadn't met anyone. So I just met Vlad. And I was just this awkward dude in the cellar. And there's a whole team of people around me, you know. And okay. it's Fred from Ga. Okay, yeah. and, uh, and a bunch of the old sommeliers from Gagan. And it was a great group of people. But at the same time, I was like, I don't know these people. Like, I'm fucking terrified. Like, yeah, these yeah. are all like Michelin star. Like, these are cream of the crop motherfuckers. Like, they probably don't take no shit. Um, and I remember Gagan walked into the room eating like ice street ice cream. And he like looks over at me and he just goes, Hey Vlad, who the fuck is this? <laughs> and I was just sitting there like, oh my God. I was like, oh shit. I was like, it's like I'm definitely not getting the job now. And then of course, fast forward to yeah, like a month later. And then the he was like, Yeah, February first, you start. Uh what's the situation in terms of um in terms of getting into a Michelin star restaurant? And obviously you had like a nice lucky route in <laughs> the luckiest, yes. But in terms of working in one. What's the situation in that respect in terms of being a psalm there versus, say, that fine dining uh, situation that you've got going on with, you know, Michelin stars and so on versus casual fine dining in terms of your approach to guests, in terms of your approach to wine, in terms of your choices in wine? Is there anything significantly different with the two or would you say everything is just basically done just purely out of pairing and so on and so forth? No, you know, sort of. You know? Yeah, I think it changed. I mean, so the thing is, is I guess I'm not the best ass because I actually didn't work Michelin star before I worked. Well, for I mean, when you started, when you obviously you've done it for now, I guess two, about years. two years. Yeah. yeah. So when, when you did the Michelin star for two years and you've obviously done the whole Seattle situation for like two years, you did, even did the tastings in the winery, right? Right. So in all of these situations, does the way you interact with your customer in terms of the choices you offer your customer significantly vary? Because obviously Vlad mentored you in such a way that your breadth of knowledge, especially of natural wine, grew so much. Right. So the choices that you make, and given you have so much choice with natural wine, For in sure. terms of how you pair it with the menu, in terms of what you offer the customer, especially I would say in, say, for example, the more non-traditional situation where they buy a bottle right. versus do a wine pairing. Sure. So what you give the customer in terms of fine dining versus, say, casual dining, right? Do you, in terms of what you offer is very different significantly, or do you try and pigeonhole it towards the what you'd normally do for a pairing? I would say it, it's different. So when I was in Seattle, I would, and especially with the dining that I was working at this, I would pretty much just try to guide, and this is still the case, I think it's the job of the sommelier or the wine person, whoever it is, to help Na help a person navigate the list yeah because and this is something that people will say constantly it's like you've never seen anyone more terrified you know than a person 
that is on a first date trying to pick a fucking bottle of wine right. to impress their partner. You exactly. Know? Um, which that's, is great because that's, that's the job. Worst, you you yeah. get to be the ultimate wing person. You're like, homie, like let me help you out. Like, right. This is going to be beautiful with this. And it, it, but it, a lot it's always of it the was, worst situation you want to be in. <laughs> right. So you help navigate, I think, a little bit with that. And I think this, it's the same with fine dining, but I think with Michelin starred especially – is the caliber of guests you usually have coming in is expecting something very particular. So, and I found this out because I, and I found it out the hard way, which is why I appreciate, not not the hard way, but I found it out in Trial by Fire. Yeah. And that's what Vlad, whether it was an intentional thing as making me a better person or a better wine person, or was there was simply just, fuck it, you got it. Yeah. He just kind of threw me in. I remember my right first then. night, I was kind of trailing, and it was funny because we were looking at the chef's table, he was like, it's like, yeah, you know, this is a chef's table. Like, I want you to work up here because, you know, you're really good at talking. You're going to hear more about the food. And you only have to interact with 14 guests at a time. Um, it's like, cool. And then he was like, wait a minute. Do you have a hand tattoo? <laughs> I was like, yeah. Is that cool? He's like, yeah, I don't give a fuck. But then the next day, I was like, okay, so chef's table, like, pretty much right away. And but I, you were kind of hanging back, I assume. No, but, it, because, but, I, but I was in there and I was, like, I was like, cool, I know about natural wine. People are here for natural wine. I'm excited. And no, that was not the case. Wow. Because I remember people coming in, they were like, yeah, you know, I'm here for Gaga. And they're like, oh, this Aussie guy was like, oh, I want this Shiraz. And I was like, I love this Shiraz. But it's not at all typical or traditional or even somewhat close to what people expect. And I remember opening it for the guy and the guy being like, what the fuck is this? Like, I don't want this wine. And then him and then him ordering another one and him being like, this isn't Gewürztraminer. Like, this is not the fucking wine that I wanted. And I, this is like the second day. And I was just like, oh, shit. I was like, I can't just – I was so ready to be like, okay, I'm Michelin – like, I'm working for a Michelin star spot. Like, I get to have ownership. I, I get to not have ownership, but I, I was like – I was fully ready to be like, yo, I can I can present these really wild flavors and ideas to people, and, and they're there for it, which wasn't the case. Okay. Even if people were at Gagan where they were expecting, yeah. lick the plate, yogurt explosion, all this stuff that's already taken them out of their comfort zone, sometimes people, they didn't want – most of the time, they didn't want that for the wine. Interesting. But then you would have the guests that would do the pairing or and, 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 or the pairing or appreciate wine or wanting to try something different. And that was a really beautiful opportunity for me. And that also – and I would say that working at Michelin Star changed my perspective in a way that I talk about wine because where I was at the chef's table, being very perform performative, you have the floor to talk about what you're presenting. So for me – Working Michelin, working fine dining, working chef's table was so much more about trying to adequately and accurately portray stories of winemakers rather than telling people about like flavors and shit. And wet, working behind the bar there, for me, made me become better at not communicating about the grander stories about wine, but about assessing people's needs okay. and wants for what they want because yeah. you find that and that's the thing is it, it and i remember taking it home being like oh man this french guy fucking yelled at me because the merlot didn't taste like merlot and i was like okay well you need to and i was like this is also for me i was like okay for your mental health first off you can't be taking this shit home it's a, yeah, bottle, it's a bottle of fucking wine you know what i mean it's like you know there's nothing worse than like you know, just carrying you're, the baggage. Yeah. yeah, you're fucking your partner, and you're like, all you can think about is hey, you broke the yeah. cork in dinner. Yeah. Right? It's like it's like this is not the thing I want to be thinking about. Um, and uh, and it, it, it for me it was like, okay, Otri, you can't like you have to find a way to 
protect your own mental health, your mental energy, but also not just to protect yourself, but just so that you can give that energy to the people that not deserve it, but need it and want it and want to have that with wine. So I remember when we first started, like when I first started in the chef's while, you would get really, I would get really like kind of personal when people are like, oh, I don't want to do the pairing. I want a gin and tonic. I'd be like, fucking fine. Then like, you know, whatever, have your fucking (laughs) gin and tonic. But then I was like, it's not about me. And I think it's very easy. I think in a lot of places to, especially working in wine to be like, well, this is my list. Like this is this is me, you know. Yeah. But at the same time, you are still trying to make someone happy. You are you are trying to make someone feel as un- as comfortable and as welcomed and as hospitable as possible. Would you say that's something that a lot of new psalms need to take on board? Is especially if they want to enter into such a high, high level of fine dining, whether it's Michelin star, non Michelin star, but just in general fine dining, especially something at the chef's table, that they would need to literally back pocket their ego. And forward think what the guest wants and why they're leaning towards that and how to navigate that minefield of, I want a Merlot, but you know personally the Merlot is not going to go with everything else on the menu. Absolutely. So it's just a matter of navigating that minefield of, well, you would like the Merlot, but you will probably prefer this with all the rest of the menu, you know? Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's and, and a that's lot of it's how you, I th- guess, how you phrase things. That is so true, and, and and that is something that you learn, I think, being on the floor. Um, I think that's and again, it comes down to when I was in university. It's like you can teach as much theory for wine as you want. You can talk to someone about how to handle a situation with a guest, but unless you, that person is in your grill, fucking you up, like. You're not going to know how to yeah. deal with it, which is not, I'm not saying that people should have to go through that. I remember, I remember one of the worst tables I've ever had was this, that I, I, I certainly like this. Cause at a certain point, like you can only do so much to try and of make someone happy. And then at a certain point you're like, Oh, you're just fucking miserable. You're here to be miserable. Yeah. I was pouring this rosé and a little drop landed on the white tablecloth and the woman pointed at it and she goes, <gasps> and I remember looking and I was like, yeah, I'm not pouring you any more wine. And I was like, I, I think you've had too much. And I cut her off. And, oh, wow. And she's like, oh, that's ridiculous. And I was like, well, I was like, well, that reaction deserved that. So I was like. Wait, wait, did you do that on purpose? Or? Yeah. I was, I was like, yeah, I was like, yeah, fuck you. I was like, I was like, I'm sorry. But like, I'm trying, like, you know, this is like the fourth wine in. And, and this is also the thing is people were always told, like, you know, restaurants are, oh, kowtow to everyone. You know, these, these old white people flew all the way from wherever the fuck. Get the fuck out of here. Like, I'm sorry. And, and, and this is, again, sorry, going to come back to yeah. my whole social thing. But so much of fine dining is built on this fucking, like, you're here to serve me as my servant kind of thing. And people get this syndrome in Asia, especially. I'm in Bangkok. It's supposed to be cheap. Like, I'm here to, like, have my honeymoon. And, you know, like, all, like, all these Thai people <laughs> are here to, like, fucking bend to my will and whim and fucking fan me with palm fronds. And that's like not the case. And I think the worst part about it is we ha- is like, is that like it's hard not to perpetuate that because I think Michelin top fifty best it enables people to behave like this. It enables the and because like the you you'd say that because the guests can afford it and they think that the staff can't. Right. It enables it enables this toxic culture of being like, oh well, this guy could say horrible things about me, attack me personally. But still, at the end of the day, like, customer's always right, right? Like, yeah, like, all this stuff. But that doesn't take into account, you know, mental health of people working in the of industry course. and the very human fact of it. Um, 
Is there is there a reason that this is a disconnect on that um, level of, in terms of me being the customer and you being the psalm or, for example, the waiter or anything? Is there a reason there's a massive disconnect when it comes to that fine dining level of Michelin or in general, just any fine dining that people suddenly forget? Because if you meet someone on the street and you bump into them, the correct thing is anyway to say sorry and then move on about your right. day, right? But for whatever reason, you do get, and I would say, I, I kind of agree, yes, and especially in Asia, because in the States, I think there's far more protection in terms of customer and in terms of uh, employee and employer situation. Right, right. Whilst in Asia, you don't really have that employee-employer yeah. situation, right? So what I'm saying is that, I would you say, or what would be the reason, do you think, that is it perpetuates so much more in Asia and it more so in terms of fine dining culture that the customer will walk into the restaurant and if he had bumped into you on the street 20 minutes earlier, he'd have apologized. But the minute he sits at that table, he suddenly feels like he's he's king, he's domain, and he is the one that deserves everything. And I get, okay, fine, you're paying a certain price. Yeah. But just paying that price doesn't instantly make you, you're not the one paying the whole salary of that person. You know what I mean? And even if you were, you also don't need to call that person an idiot, an idiot or anything right. else. Right. You know? uh, part of it, oh man. Sorry, maybe there's, there's, so my simplest answer, um, but it's a simple answer, but it, it, it has, of course, it brings up many more questions because obviously I don't think you can always boil things down to one simple direct, like, boom, this is because of this. But, Let's just be real, I think, in talking of the fact that most fine dining is built off of colonialist institutions. So just a good example of that. Um, we still see lasting effects of colonialism wherever we go. Yeah. I'm not going to say that, oh, yeah, I suffer because of colonialism on the daily. I'm a half-fucking white dude who's mostly white passing. Like, I have all these benefits and advantages and all these things afforded to me. I sometimes like to joke that I'm, like, fucking Schrodinger's race because I want to be Asian. <laughs> I'm fucking Asian. When I'm white, I put yeah. on the white face, put on the white guy voice. Um, but the, the fact that dining, I mean, even tipping. People don't think about tipping. Tipping was created as a system to essentially not allow servers, people of color, to gain enough money. It was a way to essentially, oh, yeah. Tipping in itself is inherently. I've fucking, always, I've always been so confused with this whole tipping. It's thing. inherently fucking racist and sexist and fucked up. And as much as like tipping is such an important part of industry, people don't really view it as that. But really, the way it started, at least in the U.S., was essentially denying people of color, especially black people working in restaurants, full pay, and essentially leaving that that tip their their livelihood up to the whim of whatever the guest was yeah, because so it creates the, that power dynamic right yeah because it confuses it like the first time you know like after like me and my family visited the states and then the first time i went back i remember i landed and then i went to a restaurant with my friend and it was just a casual one on like sun, sunset boulevard sure. nothing fancy right but my friend goes oh yeah you gotta leave like 15 percent or something and i was like why and he's like well you know because if you don't tip like that much they get upset and i'm like I'm so confused. I'm like in Asia and in general, most places I've been, right. there's already a set 10%. Yeah. That's always given to the staff. And two, the service staff should be paid adequately enough. A living wage. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And so it confused the heck out of me because they were like, if you don't pay that, that's like, that's generally the living wage. And I was like, right. what do you mean? I'm like, yeah. But I mean, if you don't tip, it's fucking French socialism or some shit, right? I mean, yeah. it's, that's, that's the thing. And, and it's also this other thing too, where it's like, it's, it's things that are, and it's the same with wine. It's it's not about 
unlearning, but it's about relearning why, you know what I mean? It's like, it's like you have to work in the system that we have, but that doesn't mean you need to be complacent and okay with it. You're allowed to question why, why the fuck, why is it that we have this tipping culture that in the U S people get so upset, not even necessarily because maybe it's a personal thing, but because this person's depending on it for their livelihood. And it's also the thing, like, this is a huge thing. Um, I remember I was about to go get a pi- and, and this is no shade to anyone in the industry, especially that has of a pineapple so. tattoo, anything like that. But the symbol, the pineapple, yeah. is perhaps regarded as one of the most unanimous symbols of hospitality. Oh, really? Yeah. Why? So I'll tell you a good story. So so you'll see a lot of people, myself included, that have pineapple tattoos. That yeah, work I in see the a industry. lot of. I, I've seen. Well, I don't. I can't, like off the top of my head, I don't yeah. know a lot but, of people. But I'm but sure like, you yeah. know at least. I've, I mean, yeah, I've you know bartenders. It. Yeah, you, I'm sure there's probably one person at Tropics. You know, so everyone's got a pineapple tattoo. That's cool because it is. It is a symbol of our industry. It's a symbol of hospitality. It's a symbol of, uh, uh, you know, or at least what it means now to many people is this like, yeah, it's the pineapple. It's it's this kind of it's this it's the symbol that of of joy and fun and, and this hospitality. This thing, but people don't really look too much deeper into it. But I remember being like, why the fuck is this? pineapple the symbol of hospitality where does that come from yeah and it started with a simple question and this was years ago before i was even like you know i guess like you can call me as like fucking woke social social justice warrior as i am now but i remember being like i should probably do a little research first because i was gonna get it i was gonna get yeah. a tattoo on my thumb of the pineapple and i was reading well, it i needed it on your bicep instead yeah but it's got a, so it's got a sword going through it with blood coming out of it and the reason why is because the pineapple as a symbol of hospitality is really only a hosp- symbol of hospitality to some and what that means simply is because why is a symbol of hospitality is in the U.S., in the colonies, in the, the new world that was being colonized by either the, in the Americas or in Europe, a symbol of wealth was the pineapple. Really? To oh. yeah, when you had a house party, if you know, if you're you know a Virginia elitist or yeah. whatever plantation owner, you had your p- friends over and you put a big old pineapple out. And what? it was a symbol of hospitality. And wow. the reason why was because, well, you look deeper into it. How, how is it possible that someone in Virginia or whatever at that time could have a pineapple? Well, it was because they owned people. They owned slaves in the Caribbean. Okay. So they could, they, or they could afford to have fruit, brought, tropical fruit brought to them in the U.S. And at that time, there's no fucking ethical way that's happening. There's no fair trade. No, they probably yeah it's, it's, yeah, it's enslaved people of color supplying the fucking fruit. Did not know this. Right. So and, and I didn't either. <laughs> and so that and I, but I was like, holy shit. And it was like, yeah, and I remember reading this thing. I don't know if don't quote me exactly on this one, but I remember reading that was like when Columbus arrived, the natives, the Arawaks, had pineapples or were giving them pineapples as gifts of like, oh, like welcome kind of thing. How did Columbus respond by killing and raping and genociding everyone? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um so first off, also Fuck Columbus. I'm going to go on the fuck train. <laughs> fuck Zuckerberg. Fuck Columbus. We'll continue with more in a little bit. Um, but it was this idea that the, hosp- the symbol of hospitality, which seems so unanimous in the world, is really only a symbol of white colonialist hospitality. Um, and it's not to devalue what it means to our industry, but I think it's, it's also essential to look at why things are symbols or why things are institutionalized. And it's not to say that if you have a pineapple tattoo, like I fucking do, that you're a racist or you like Columbus or you're not. In, but but it is. It, it's also it's important that we ask questions. Also, it's the same with wine. I, was, I had I was talking to someone the other day because, and we'll get into this more in a little bit about what I do with wine now. 
But they were like, after I watched your show about pairing Asian food or Asian, certain Asian flavors with wine, it completely changed everything. Because I've always been taught that, you know, I was never taught about Asian food with wine. I was never taught that, you know, I was only taught that things had to be like this because this is the way they are. And I didn't, you know, question them otherwise. And I think that, and I, and, but obviously these things are in flux. They're changeable. And if you know, if we know the origin behind why we do certain things, then it allows us to change things or at least allows us to be more knowledgeable about why these things are occurring. So would you say, especially for all these like people that are, when you look back, right, and you see your path that's come here and your understanding of all these things now, would you say a lot of the psalms that are going to come up and the psalms that you will eventually meet through your new projects, through all your experiences, through all the restaurants and bars and everything else, right? All these psalms that you'll meet, would you ever say when they're coming up for them, what would be the best path for them in terms of after all, all you've experienced, in terms of af- having experienced Michelin, in terms of what you've done for your future projects, right? And that you're setting up and everything that you're currently doing. And then everything that you've done in the past, from vineyards to winery tastings and everything, and even having done the um, the courses, right, Cert- getting the certification. Right. And I know I know a couple psalms that have gone ahead and done all the way to like that level three, you yeah, know, and all advanced, that advanced master, all that stuff. Yeah, right. It's it's crazy, and I I never understood much of it. All I understood really was. There's a lot of tasting involved. There's a lot of understanding. There's a lot of memorization, right. um, which is insane. It's like going back to school for an wine itself, which is yeah. cool. But I, I do feel like it's almost like you don't you don't get the appreciation that I've seen you and I've seen Vlad and everyone else that speak about wine to their their you know their peers with such passion. I don't see it when they're doing the exams, right? right. But what I'm saying is, through all of that, what would be a path that you would think is the most obviously it's very subjective right but if you had to raise a young otra oh yeah <laughs> i always think about this man someone asked me that like yo what would you say to like 12 year old you yeah and i was like first off if 12 year old me saw me now he'd be like what the fuck happened dude <laughs> like not in a bad way but yeah. he'd be like holy shit like uh, oh, man you must have been through some shit over the last like uh, fucking, right. you know, 15 years but um what i would say is that make wine as personal as possible and not okay sorry and i'll define that make wine a personal endeavor for you in the sense that you could read every book every textbook every theory you know history about things but that's knowledge i mean that's just knowledge at the end of the day which is great it empowers you it gives you foundation it allows you to regurgitate and tell people about stuff but unless you find those things that connect with you and your personal story and your 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 beliefs whatever they be around wine then that's what we're missing the most of um and this is nothing against classic or conventional wine because the thing is is i have i mean a good friend is a master sommelier who's a massive advocate of both natural minimal intervention winemaking just being more thoughtful about it and he's also a master sommelier which is incredible because it means that you know, he's He's worked so hard to attain this level of respect, knowledge, and intellect. But at the same time, he has not necessarily followed the path of a traditional psalm and has instead carved out this thing where he's had to, you know, maybe take criticism from his peers 
or maybe strays from something different. So I don't think it depends on whether you did conventional or not, but I think the biggest thing you see in wine is people that that bring their personality into it. Um, it's so finding your own niche. Right, and I think that's ve- it's, it's very easy to say, like, oh, be your most truest authentic self, but, like, it's true. And you will, you and I will tell this to any person, young person listening, I mean, they listens to this in wine, is that you will go through institution after institution that will not necessarily try to, in your face, break you down, but will probably try to maybe narrow or confine your what you're you what you should know or yeah. what what you think your, your what, knowledge or yeah your you're kind of like it's a tunnel visioning a little bit in terms of of the path and it yeah. has to be like this or it has to be like this and i think the biggest thing that we're missing is just is is freedom. personality yeah. it's personality and it's freedom and it's and and for me it was like and i don't even think i found that necessarily until maybe recently um it's something that we're constantly always trying to find for that authentic self yeah. being human um, but I think that's the biggest thing in wine is, is there is such a, there is such a reinforced curriculum. There is such a, um, a, like a status quo that's been built around it. But at the end of the day, it's like, you know, it's just like, it's just like everything else. It's like, we only do it because this is what we've been taught. Right. You know, this is, we only do this because we continue, we, we choose to continue to perpetuate the cycle, whether it be something that's inherently really negative or something that's good. But we continue to perpetuate it because right. that's how we've been taught, and that's that's how it is. But at the same time, that always leaves room for you to try and just gouge out as much of what you see in yourself in what you love, especially when it's wine. So for me, the biggest thing that is like I would say that connection came was I grew up eating Burmese food. I've always loved Burmese food. For a lot of my life, if you asked me what my favorite food was, I maybe wouldn't say Burmese food. Not because I don't love it, but because I was like, you know, I grew up with it. You know, I grew yeah. up, I always had it at home. But then as I got older and I wasn't seeing my grandmother as much, wasn't with my family as much, that was the food that I only wanted to eat it. Uh, eat, you know, it was, eat it. It was the only food I wanted to eat. It was, the, it was the thing that not only made me feel comfortable and at home, but it made me feel like, oh, I fucking know this. I know these flavors. This is me. But I also know wine, and I also know that that this part of wine is, you know, that this part of me that is involved in wine is kind of like indivisible from that. Just in the same way that me being Burmese, having this food culture, is also completely tied into the way that I approach, well, service, cooking, everything relating with food. Um, so then I think it took some time to realize that, and I think it was kind of, a, I mean, like it, it's not something that you kind of just decide. You're like, oh, I'm gonna be more personal, you know, and just try to like do that. But it, you find, I think you find these avenues working in wine, working as a sommelier, working in service, talking with people where you begin to create the connections of why it's important to you. Um, and then, then it allows you to convey it better. And that's also because it's the same way with like, um, with, with Gutogao, which is this amazing winery. Those listening you may have seen them. It, it's, it's the bottle with, with the face on it. It's a natural wine and they've got a whole family of members and faces I remember talking to them, and part of it was that, you know, it wasn't just that they wanted to do something weird and different, even this though it was. This is the vineyard that you visited. Right, and yeah. this is the vineyard I worked in actually last year in Austria. So I've done two harvests now. Um, and actually, after this, real quick, I'll just give the last little bit of my timeline. Yeah. Um, um, and they were like, you know, we, just, we felt that it was personal for us. We felt that creating these wines were an extension of ourselves. And as much as anyone can say that that's a goofy thing, it's the same thing as music. It's the same thing as cooking. It's, you know... 
to think of it at any less than like a very human and very passionate endeavor is is to is to not give it its full full extent of quality. But I remember also <laughs> serving wine at the at Gutagao at the wine bar, and I remember people coming in just being like, "I want the wine with the fucking face on it. Give me that." And at the same time, it, again, it's also kind of like removing the ego. It's like, okay, this wine is very personal to me, and I love this wine. But I also have to be okay with the fact that you want this wine simply because of what you want it for. And I can't, like, I can't gatekeep. I can't guard it and be like, no, like, you don't, I am the arbiter of this wine and you don't deserve to drink it. Because I was like that. I was really, I struggled with that because I was like, these are such beautiful things that are made by friends or people that I know. And I don't want it to be like, quote unquote, quote unquote, wasted. But that in itself, I, I completely had to defeat that notion because it's like, it's not about you at the end of the day. Yeah. What And I guess maybe that's confusing to say, make wine about you, but then it's not about you. But really what it means is at the end of the day is injecting your sense of self, your personality, which makes your experience not only just with wine unique, but it allows you to convey your experience with wine to someone. And whether or not they think it's cool, that's up to them. And that's where you leave you put yourself in front of them. You put out what you, you put out the energy that you want to give to them, just as much as you need. Not any more, not any less. But at the same time, you also have to know that they're human and they will enjoy what they want, and they have to be able to feel comfortable and happy. So it's finding that that happy ground in between. But and I guess the main thing is, don't ever let anyone tell you that something has to be the way it the is, way it is yeah. especially with wine. Because as I've gotten more and more into it, and I've said this since the first day I picked up a wine book, yeah. the more I learn about wine, the less I know. Interesting. In a good way. Yeah. Because it will never cease to surprise me. Because the more I know, the more I think I could know, the more I think I could taste this soil or have this, and I will have something that is made by someone or is done in a year that is so special that it changes your perception of it. So I... Interesting. Always, I mean, I think that's the thing is never accept anything as it is simply because it is. And I think that also relates to service as well. Um, there are many places that will tell you that working in Michelin star, you know, obviously, you know, you pour from the right and all these things that they look for. But don't let that deny your sense of individuality in the way yeah. that you bring to service. Um, sorry, I realized that was a really, really, really long. No, no. But point. I mean, that's a, that's the other thing that I was going to say is, is there... And before we jump back into your timeline, but just on this notion of Psalms coming up and in general work in the industry in terms of even just dealing with the customer, because I will say this, and this is probably going to dive into the mental health thing a little early, but just in general, what I've noticed is that with people, and I've started to do this more and more and more, is that when someone gives you some snarky or some almost negative situation, I used to hit that head on, you know, and this relates to like serving customers, I guess, at some point and so on. But you take that so personally, right? And you as a human, you can't help but do that, right? right? Of course. Because the minute someone hits you with a comment that you know is almost like a backhand, yeah, you instantly, your brain switches yeah, and you go straight on the defensive or, or offensive in some cases, right. right? Of course, of course. So what I'm saying is in terms of navigating it, what I've realized is I've always taken a step back now. And I've gone, their issue isn't actually with me. Mm. There's something clearly going on with them. Right. And that is clearly why they're attacking me is they're not capable of handling it themselves. For sure. And it's really helped my interactions with people because it's changed how I respond. 
knowing that what I've said has clearly triggered something internally and or how I've acted has triggered something internally, what was that trigger? And then it's about breaking that down, right? And then eventually it usually calms the situation and then that person really does switch to becoming much more nicer. So And so my my thing that I'm saying here is basically more towards service when you're like that lady, for example, that pointed and was like, oh my God, the spot on the table or any other customers, for example, ever throughout your whole entire tenure and doing all this um, industry work, right? Even bartending is how have you managed to navigate, especially most recently in your endeavors and everything, right? In terms of meetings, in terms of just generally being out, in terms of service has what would you say is the best thing that you've learned dealing with a customer that really does change the situation, especially from the go to when a customer comes in and they're just not happy in general and how have you managed to really bring them a little bit more joy? Because obviously as a Psalm, I feel like you've got more personal contact sure, compared to the waiter. The yeah. waiter is great. His job is anyway to take the food and all that. Psalm, on the other hand, you're really there, especially if they've asked for wine. Guiding the evening. Yeah. You're the one that makes their night. For you sure. come around, how's the wine, everything. And the best part about that is, for what I find is, usually waiters will come around and ask you, well, how's the food when your mouth is already full? Right, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's the most annoying thing because yeah. it's like, you could have asked me this like a couple seconds earlier, a yeah. couple seconds later. But you come at this point, whilst to the wine, it's like the psalm sees it and then they go, oh, okay, great. Now I can ask, oh, how was the wine, sir? Right. Or madam? Yeah. yeah. I, I think... So this is, yeah, and it kind of comes back to what we were saying earlier of there are, it's, it's also, it's, 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 it's this duality of I had to let my guard down a bit in order to be like, yeah, exactly. Like, oh, people get really defensive sometimes. So like the best way to respond is not to be super defensive because this is the problem too. And this is the, this is the, this is the, the, the social contract that being in a restaurant kind of sets up is that it puts the person, the diner, in this position of power. And whether it's intentional or not, um, because you're, you're serving them, that's kind of the idea, right, I guess. Um, but with that is also, is, you know, is, is, is if you're defensive, and this is terrible because this is probably, like, and this is not a good thing to reinforce, but it's like if you are defensive, if you are snap, then he's not the one in the wrong. The guy who got yelled of at, he, yeah, it's you who's yeah. losing your shit. And then the guy's like, oh, I went to this restaurant and the person was so rude. And it doesn't matter because no one else is going to hear the story, but what they're going to read is the fucking whatever yeah. review this guy fucking writes. So, which is unfortunate because it's also probably like every woman in the world who's ever been told, oh no, like don't speak out too much or don't act crazy. Otherwise guys won't take you. And it's like, oh, well fuck you then. Because yeah. like, how am I supposed to act? I'm a human being with a full range of emotions but at the same time, you're put in this horrible position yeah. where you're like, okay, I can't lose my shit. I need to keep it calm, even if someone is making things difficult. So the thing I've tried to, and I, and I is, is trying to approach with some levity, um, and also by being very, very self-aware. Like there's been many of times, and even maybe it wasn't even myself, but I think it's if you if you try to let your guard, and not even letting your guard down, but if you if you give the notion that you're letting your guard down from someone, it makes them feel very comfortable. Okay, interesting. Well, like, you know, it's like one time, for instance, like we're talking about Burgundy, and I don't know a lot of Burgundy wines. I've had been lucky to drink some of it. Um, this guy was like, oh, yeah, like you seem to know like some stuff about some of these wines. I was like, yeah, like, I, like, I know I look like a hipster fuck, but like, <laughs> I know a couple <laughs> things. And he was like, oh, like, yeah. He's like, at first when I walked up, this guy thought I had no fucking idea about anything yeah. about it. And then through this process, 
you kind of get to be a little bit more like cheeky and be like, oh yeah, motherfucker. No, I do know, but like I'm not gonna like make you feel bad about it. But like you know, here's I'm being I'm I want to be self aware because I think that you already think that there's this tension. Whatever you walk into this restaurant, you see this dude covered in tattoos and fucking piercings and whatever, and you're already like, I'm not expecting this. Um. And I think that even though we should live in an ideal world where that should be fine, we don't, you know? Of course, it's not, yeah. yeah. So you have to navigate that as it is. So I think part of it is being very self-aware. Um, and not to the point where I'm self-deprecating, but being like, I know where I'm at in life. Yeah. I worked hard to be here. But I also know that you, as you are as a diner, is probably not used to whatever yeah. this is. But at the same time, on the other side, it's also a shout-out and a big call to, again, talking to get into the mental health thing, is if there's a certain point where someone has proven to you that there is no happiness to be had of the evening, where some people will go to a restaurant just to antagonize, just to attack, oh, just to feel yeah. where they have the dynamic, the power in their hands, then I think that that's the point where we as an industry and as industry workers should be better equipped to be like, no, we will not tolerate this kind of behavior because it's not good for my staff. And it's also, you're not going to leave happy, right? And it's like, it's not creating anything mutually beneficial if you're still gonna be miserable when you leave and this guy's fucking crying in the walk-in later because yeah. he said something terrible. Um, so I think it's, again, reanalyzing maybe how we approach these sort of interactions in the industry, but also part of it is it's self-awareness. And I think also self-awareness is big in a lot of things. It's funny we were talking a little bit about like cancel culture stuff and I think there's a lot of being different debates about it. And I, I don't like the term cancel culture mostly because I think that everything should be this learning opportunity. Everyone, I, for, for me, it's mostly the situation of I feel like cancel culture immediately denies the ability for the person to express why they did X, Y, Z. And I feel like that's especially for the situation of, for example, Kevin Hart with the whole gay such thing that he joked about and then ended up not being able to do the awards. Oh, I didn't hear about this. This is like a while back. Oh. Uh, yeah, the, I think it was the Oscars or something like that or the Academy Awards. One of the two. He was like the first black comedian or something like that that was allowed to host it. Yeah. It was a huge thing. And then someone dug up tweets from like 2015 or 2014 some or 2008, some point in life yeah. where he was just messing around and he was like, oh, if my son was gay, I'd beat him on the head with like a Barbie doll house or something like that, you know? Right, right. But that was a joke he said back then. He kind of semi-meant it, but he's since progressed. And people went yeah. on to cancel culture him. And so even though he apologized and people kind of accepted it, he then just stepped down. Right. And it was a moment that could have been avoided I mean, that's a moment, period in time. And I get it. I understand that people are like, well, you can't just let that go. And I'm like, but people do learn and evolve. For sure. You know, it, It's all about recognizing growth and honestly being self-policing. Yeah. In the sense that... It's different if he said it today. Right. But also in the sense that, like, to quote one of some of my favorites, Jesus and Marrow, yeah. absolutely amazing, podcast, late night show, completely irreverent. But at the same time... They have never, and and they've said they said things that are could be considered wildly offensive, but it's never from the scope of being like I'm just gonna say this to be offensive, or it's like oh if we said this in the past like this is how we've grown from this. Right. This is like one of the funniest things to say is like yo, don't drink, don't dig up my teeth. Sorry, don't don't dig up my tweets from 2010. Yeah. Because it's gonna be fucked up. Yeah. Everyone's tweets from 2010 fucked up. But I mean, it's less of that since it's very easy to joke about that. But it's also like. Yeah, you know, where is it's different if someone says something terrible and they're not like recognizing of it or wanting to show growth or wanting to move forward or at least understanding 
or at least even being open to hearing yeah. about like what so for like uh, like you know what it is i think that's that's also part of it too is like is is it dep- it's it it shouldn't be if the person is is willing and is able and and wants to like not even necessarily right the wrongs but understand why what they did was maybe problematic or created an issue then I think it's different. But again, if yeah, if you have the idea of like, oh fuck you, you said this, everything you say from then on is fucking here right. on out, yeah. right? And I think it's obviously it's situation to situation. Um, but I definitely think uh, in in terms of just uh, going back anyway into service. But I think I I agree with you entirely. Is if you've tried everything in your power to kind of progress the night with someone and try and make them happy, and they've just literally turned around and made miserable the whole time. I think at that point, then it's time just to cut ropes and be like, "All right, cool." Yeah, you know? there's only so much. I, I think can that do. yeah, I think at some point you kind of need to start taking care of your own mental health, and you kind of need to start looking at things more for yourself. So not just in terms of being a psalm, but in terms of service and coming up, a lot needs to be done in terms of your own mental health and in terms of really just progressing yourself. You know, because if you don't really progress further in terms of your mental health just going to be miserable through your job experience. Yeah. 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 And, 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 and a lot of that too is also with, yeah, it's, it's, it's making sure that you are well equipped to know your own boundaries and to be able to set boundaries with people. Yeah. That's, that's a big I think, thing. I think a lot of that comes from self-awareness for sure, which I'm curious. So you, you were doing the whole Michelin thing and then you did the whole vineyard thing, right? Right. Which is obviously Vlad's really pushed you out there to do all that also. Right. With yeah. Those, those yeah. That was the biggest thing with Gutogao. Vlad, who is my mentor and who, who is still the, the head sommelier at Gagan, um, connected me and made sure that I was able to have those experiences yeah. because he knows how fundamental that is. And especially because I think also he knew how crucial it was for me to be able to have something like that. And also one of the biggest things too was that just being able to have you know a, t- a seller to taste through, um, and and just someone to kind of give just the right nudge, but still like explore on your own kind of thing and allow. You know, I, I think the thing is, you know, there was never handbook for the way I had to do service. I think my Michelin experience was perhaps a bit different because for me it it did feel like I could carve out my own personal part of it. Yeah. But because of that, I felt like I was exposing and revealing more of myself. And that's why when I took things hard, maybe I took them even harder because I felt like it was part of me that I had spent so much energy and so much time into trying to do this or trying to convey this fact or make this person happy. Um, so I think that's a and, – um, and sorry, really quick. Do you want to go with timeline or mental health first? What do you want to talk about We'll first? do timeline. Yeah. So just to finish, um, yeah. So I, 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 I was working. I started working February two thousand eighteen, uh, two thousand nineteen. Sorry, with Gagan, um, Michelin star. You know, we we worked until we, uh, until we ended up closing that restaurant um, because of you know partners, issue, yeah. fiasco issues, all these things. I mean, so that in itself is another fucking story. Um, but then I left and I worked in Austria for. Um, for and a little while was, doing that was harvest. With Vlad that pushed you into that, so right? Yeah. And and that was Vlad who allowed me kind of open up this opportunity for me to do that. And then I came back to the U.S. just for about a month. Um, How? Yeah, and you did that pop up. Yeah, so I did a Burmese food pop up, which again kind of connects back to you know me finding the personal things that I love. Burmese food always being one of these things really at my heart and core, and then getting to do that with natural wine for me was like wow, that was like gateway drug number one. I was like, if I get to do like this is, I love this. I was like, I love, I love wine, but I love this specifically. It was like my food that I know, my flavors, 
not my food, but like the flavors that I know, food that I grew up with, all these things, and then getting to pair that with the wines that for me made the most sense for the, the stories that I want to tell, all these things. Um, and I spent a little bit of time back in Oregon. I saw my buddy Kyle. You know, I helped out a little bit. Um, you know, we like took a bunch of mushrooms and fucking, you know, made some wine and stuff. It was fucking awesome. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Um, but then I, and then I came back and because we were opening the new, the new iteration of, of what we had created before. And, um, yeah, and I did that until 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 September, as of until very recently, yeah. um, when um, I when I left. Yeah, um, and and then just and, and not to get too much into it, but to speak just in very frank terms of it, it is the in in any restaurant in our industry, burnout is very real. Um, yeah, that's the thing. I'm just curious. How did you recognize burnout? It was it was lockdown. It was lo- it was quarantine and it was lockdown. The pandemic but, but, is was but was your burn well surely that alleviates the burnout. Right, exactly. That's what it was. That's exactly what it was. So I was I got here, you know, I got here at the beginning of October. We opened the restaurant. We worked six days a week, non fucking stop. I think December, maybe I took two days off. What we all took two days off because we were working constantly. My Christmas celebration was me and three other dudes. Um, shout out Zev, Fabio, I can't remember who else was with us, but us dude. Again, drinking tequila at Little Donkey with Steve for oh, Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. You know, just a couple American dudes being like, oh, hey, yeah, we worked Christmas. One, you know, it's one in the morning. Like, I'm, luckily my family's here, but their families aren't here. So here we are drinking tequila because this is how we cope. Um, and then, you know, and then I started seeing my partner, uh, Grace, in January. And she's a teacher. So, you know, the whole thing of like our schedules are so different. That first thing was, was like, whoa, it was like, our schedules are very different, you know. It's yeah. gonna take some time to like try and try and work. And does yeah. that does that does that become difficult, especially being an industry person dating someone outside the industry? If they, I assume, well, Grace is a very understanding lady, right? But I mean, I guess if they weren't understanding, it'd be totally different. For sure, it takes. I think it's like with most things in relationships, we always loved the, the idea that like, oh yeah, like you know, a good relationship, you know, it, it doesn't feel like work. That's bullshit. Every good relationship takes. Not should feel like I mean I mean every good relationship takes requires work. work. It requires yeah. work in a good way. That's not a bad thing to do the work and to want to be available for people, but also have to navigate you know the difficult waters, even if it is something like our schedules being so different. So the craziest thing was that you know we had the lockdown because of coronavirus, and I went from working six days a week, probably sixty hours a week, to working you nothing. know nothing almost. You know I was going in at eleven. To Maria and Singer, the restaurant we were doing, we switched from doing fine dining to you know, takeaway tikka yeah. masala, and I was working maybe three, four hours a day. So I'd come home, I'd cook dinner, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd do the things that I guess normal, quote unquote, people get to right. do. You know, you and come so home, you, you watch of, the movies, you hold hands, you know, you watch the, the primetime TV show, all this shit. So you kind, of, you kind of got a taste for what normality is like. Absolutely. And I was, and that also was like, that was like a sweet, sweet, sweet hit, hit yeah. of dope. It was fucking, I was like, because I knew that it didn't have to be one way or the other. It yeah. never has to be one way or the other. And my life was only one way, and it was none of the other. Um, and then coming back into it, you know, we, we went from going almost nothing to then jumping into, again, six days a week, but then doing lunch and more intense hours and, you know, less salary, all these things because, you know, the, the condition of what was happening in the industry. Um, some things I understand, some things I don't. Of course, you know, I'm not a business owner, so no, I can't speak on those things. But um, but it was. It was kind of this taste of like, oh, this is what it's this is what it's also like to live in a different way. And I can have both. And and I think that even people around me kind of saw that coming back into it. They could tell that I was I was hurt. 
you were like struggling that. to kind of bring the two together because you wanted both, but you couldn't have both, so it was one or the other. Absolutely. And yeah. you weren't really willing to give that up. And know? and that was that was the thing that I, I didn't see the burnout until I was out of it. Yeah. And then I got back into it, and then I was immediately felt, I mean, just exhausted, just really physically exhausted. Um, so you would you say that taking a break is kind of more essential than anything? It is. It really is. And also because you can't see it while you're in it. Yeah. With all things, like we were talking about earlier, it's so impossible to see the full scope of what you're going through when you're in the middle of the shit, when you're in the fucking trenches. Um, when you have a second to look at it, to breathe, to take your own... I don't even think I can think about my mental health for a year and a half because I was just working. I didn't have to, you know, I was just going like, because I remember, I remember when I, uh, uh, like when we were chatting for intermediately throughout the time of your, uh, tenure there, right. Yeah. That you, that you were really progressing with your mental health and right. it was one of those things that you seem to have struggled with early on in terms of coming to Bangkok and everything else. But I guess a lot of it was baggage through the years. Right. And then you really have grown and I've seen you grow in terms of both your writing, in terms of both your desire to speak and get more into presenting the things you love to people unapologetically. Right. You know, and that's just not something that's been easy. So in terms of just your mental health, I've seen the growth. But so how how exactly through because you like you said, your time in Seattle and your time just in general has always been you trying to fill up your hours, just working, going Constantly. through. Yeah. So then how is it that you progress mental health-wise? As in, I'm assuming, because like you said, there's like anxiety, there's like depression and everything. And obviously work helps distract you slightly. You For know, sure. it's a great distraction. It doesn't help you solve the issues. Yeah. But at what was your pivot point on, well, well firstly, one, did you, when you figured everything out, but again, and and you talk about mental health, it's so different for every single person, yeah. which is why I also people have asked me, they're like, oh, well, you know, what, what is your, and Eb's like, it's so unique to me that I would never want to like tell someone how to approach dealing with their depression yeah, or their anxiety. Um, but I remember being on medication and of course medication works excellently for some people, but for me it was, I felt so violently detached yeah. um it was again it was the opposite side of the spectrum it was went from feeling everything to feeling feeling everything too much all the time to feeling nothing yeah and you know and you were not into that whole devoid of emotions right yeah. exactly and i and i felt like i i was i didn't even there was like weeks that i wouldn't remember classes or interactions and i remember i was like hooking up with this girl at the time when i was really like you know and and i just I, I ended things with her and I didn't even remember it. Like it was wow. like, it was such a, it was a difficult part of my life, but also because I think that I also didn't have a lot of, con I mean, I was taking medication, but I also wasn't trying to like necessarily better myself or really control things or really help yeah. to make you really, you know, put, putting, I guess maybe putting the work in outside of maybe not maybe putting the work in, it's not the right word, but maybe trying to at least mitigate some of the effects of it. Um, and then a lot of it came with, um, Again, self-awareness and realizing when I needed to slow down. Um, yeah. Because again, it's always, I've always been the person like, oh, I, got a, I got a podcast listening in the background. If I'm doing something constantly, then I don't have to worry about shit. Otherwise, so, so everything starts kind of So how did you like come about in. this whole self-awareness? So for me, it was... And when? Um, for me, it was, I would say, it was... 
it's hard to pinpoint. I think it's been kind of like a process over the years. But what it really was for me was first moving to Seattle um, and having a friend group, which I know not for, it's not, not everyone has that, but to have a friend group that is so unanimously, just unconditionally loving okay. was one amazing. Um, and that helped make me become a really, really a stronger person. But then another part of it also was, I think, so for me, it was, it was this kind of thing of trying to, I was so stuck of thinking that, you know, this is all I could be. Like, this is, this is the anxious kid who, you know, who's constantly second guessing or all these things. Um, and it was just trying to understand that that could be a part of me, but then just be more mindful about it. Um, and I realized that also, and I don't do it too much anymore. I have gotten back into it more recently. Maybe this is a silly example, but running. Okay. Um, I've actually heard a lot of people speak about not just specifically running, but in general, um, exercise. Yeah. Exercise is great. But running for me was like, running was the biggest, I think the biggest thing for me physically that I've ever done. And it's not even that I keep, but I did it a lot for a while, but then it's, and I, you know, did a half marathon and stuff before I moved here and all this. And I run here sometimes, but the biggest thing that it taught me, and even just as a simple example, and it, it kind of carried forward with me, was breaking through the wall. Was this kind of idea, and it's not even just so much about physical and mental strength, but it's more about, again, self-awareness, what your limits are in a good way of not always having to push past your limit, but understanding your limits, understanding where you need to be able to draw boundaries, not only with other people, but also with yourself. Interesting. Um, and a lot of it too is I, I, I constantly have conversations with myself in my head. I mean, I mean like everyone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but part of it too is, and I let these, and a I lot guess of it's easier when you're running. Yes. And, but, but also part of it too is sometimes it works negatively where you, you build scenarios in your head where you're like, Oh, you know, this happened today because of this and this person feels this way about me and you begin to create these yeah, and then it, intense it yeah, cycles. And it grips you. Right. And I think that that part of myself in conjunction with already all of the mental health stuff that I was dealing with created just kind of this perfect storm of like me not being able to really like feel very happy with myself. Um, but then over the years, it's been a, it's there. I would say that there's not been one moment. It's been a very gradual process of, especially over the four years, the past four years, where I felt like I've known myself a little bit more. Whereas the years before in university, maybe I felt a little bit more detached. Whether okay. it was because I was, you know, fucking too stoned or whatever it was to 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 try and bring the pieces together. Um, but I think it's just been kind of a constant process. And I think for me, what it's been mostly is is finding solace in yourself. Okay. Um, most, of it, most of it before was me being terrified to be alone, especially with my own thoughts. Yeah, um, which, I, which I find a lot of people struggle with this, is they, they are very worried to sit at home alone, and they're like, oh, I have nothing to do, so I'm going to go out. And yeah. uh, for me, it's like, because especially this is, and this harks back to, and sorry to cut you off, but I mean, uh, like this yeah. just, it harks back to what I actually find is what happened during lockdown was a lot of people during this whole entire circumstance, and they, especially in like the UK and stuff, I've seen this more prevalent, right? And people are like, lockdown's really bad, this, this, that. 
and I get it. Yes, it's bad because you're not earning a wage or you've lost your job or something. Those things, yes, terrible. But then there are certain circumstances where, and this is also highly terrible, which is people start committing suicide and everything, right? right. And it's because the whole sitting in a closed room and everything is just tormenting to them. You know, yeah. it's, it's a torment. Right. You know, and it's one of those situations where I find a lot of this happens to do with your own mental health mm-hmm. and your own ability to sit with your own thoughts and be comfortable with your own thoughts. For sure. And navigate those thoughts. And I just think a lot of people can't do that. Yeah. And also because I don't even necessarily think it's their fault necessarily. I don't think I don't think many, society, I don't think society does a good job yeah. of of making us feel just goddamn comfortable. I don't think society equips uh, schools certainly don't equip you. No, I don't yeah. think our our jobs or even I don't even think generally upbringing co- uh, like equips you to deal with your because obviously your thoughts will be different to your parents will be different to your f- best friends and everything else right sure. and what you go through what anxieties you go through what things that irk you are all going to be different yeah but i always find that society doesn't sort of equip us enough for this and that's why i said like about cancel culture right it's it's probably cancel culture is probably the worst thing on people's mental health because you if you're not strong enough right as a person and mentally look at and i mean this is like a this is one of the stories i saw recently not recently but um i think it was like two years ago i saw it about that porn star august ames she committed suicide right right but she committed suicide off people on twitter berating her right right and that's online right and i can just only imagine kids and everything else that's also committed suicide from online berating right Right. society doesn't equip you for it and it's insane And that's why, for me, especially meeting people like yourself who have really progressed with being able to sit down with their thoughts. And I remember you telling me you're like all, all, all about your writing and stuff and that you and I saw it. You were like you started really pushing your writing. Yeah. You know, and it's really great. Yeah. But then it's like, how how do you even get to that point? How do you, Well, and everyone's going to be different, but it's for me, a lot of it is it's giving people options. Yeah. It's giving people options on how they can kind of deal with that level of especially someone like yourself right having gone through a lot having gone through uh, equally you know breaking up terrible breakups with toxic relationships and stuff like that and now obviously you're in a great relationship and you've right. you found work-life balance finally you know yeah yeah and um so that's what i mean like in terms of just even getting to that point where you can jot down your own thoughts you can jot down poetry you can think you can talk how uh, in terms of running it obviously has helped right but what was the point where you kind of started going ahead and you started writing and you started being more and more comfortable? Mm. I think that when I started, yeah, when I, the moment it really hit me, I guess was, maybe it was even more recent thing, um, in the last few years, I mean, I think since we've known each other, has been, and not that I need constant validation, or not that I need validation always from outside, but to see people and how they were affected by me being my truest self yeah. for them, whether it was in a service environment, whether it was with my friendships, whatever it was, I could see the direct impact of that. And it's not that I needed to see you know, myself reflected in other people, but I... I it, it helped and it was very gratifying for me to to know that being my truest self, whether that be unfiltered sometimes, whether that be opinionated most of the time, people either appreciate that or they appreciate me 
or they appreciate that I've taken the energy to, to, to be that for them, to be that in a relationship, to be honest, to be forthcoming, to be all these things. Um, I guess the thing is, though, but, but through that, though, has been it's also been a very big thing of self-analysis, you know, is coming here and being like, oh, you know, like I got 100 whatever Instagram followers to being like, oh, you know, I, I could put out an episode of a show that 2,000 people will watch. Um, has maybe not had bad effects on my mental health, but I guess also has made me reconsider my, not mental health, but, but the way I, I, I represent myself to people because you have a larger scope of people that are looking at you and of viewing you, all these things. Um, but because of that, I've been more outspoken. I've decided to, I feel like even in the past, touch on things that would perhaps maybe upset more people not because I want to upset people or not because I feel like I need to just constantly shake the status quo, right. but because simply because I know that someone out there is going to feel. Yeah. And I, and I, and I convey that this is important to me. It's, it's something that I think is, is worth the value of the energy and the time and the, and the focus to look at something like that, you know, whatever, whatever it might be. Um, but again, and, and a lot of it is having the conversations with yourself, which again, coming back to it, it can be so hard to sit and to just literally be alone with yourself. Yeah, I don't think, and again, come back to it even more fully. I don't think society teaches you how to love yourself at all. Yeah, at all. Um, and I guess part of it is, fuck. Now that I'm thinking about it, I wish I had like a good, like couple things that I could give to start telling people to nourish their own happiness. I guess because I noticed, I noticed a lot of, especially for yourself. It's like for me, even when I when I've done my writings and so on, and a lot of people have seen it, and then they've like commented, they'll be like, "Oh, hey, like that's really helped me." And so, yeah. like for me it, personally, for me, it helps knowing that okay, fine, someone else is listening, and I think that's happened the same with yourself. Is like other people listening, they're hearing you, yeah. and they're agreeing with you, and so you know that even though it may be very quiet in the DMs or it may be very quiet in the comments or whatever people are watching but yeah. there are people there that are silent sitting there that they're nodding their head and going yo this is what's up yeah you and know? they're hearing you for for you yeah. rather than whatever else it might be um yeah. yeah and there was i mean even just to point out stuff that you've written and stuff that that i read and they're they're completely different you know they're not we haven't lived the same stories yeah. or anything in life but you connect with people in a way because because you have people like you with your writing, me with your wine, whatever way you want to look at it, that are willing to bear personal parts of themselves. Right. And that is where you can begin to make connections. Um, but also because I think that you have to have the emotional self-awareness to be able to put yourself out there. Yeah. And um, I think, but I think the problem is it's just how to come to that emotional self-awareness. Right. I guess that's, yeah, I guess that's where we keep yeah. coming back to. Um, and I think that's the hardest thing to do is because generally speaking in society it's not really like i said it's never trained you to do it yeah and it's uh, not necessarily prized unless it's very very niche or specific yeah. yeah and it's very hard because in general that's why that's why when we started this conversation about school and stuff i asked you i was like i was like yo so like have you when you were going to school were you the popular kid and i was like you weren't you were trying you were pushing yourself out there but you weren't pushing yourself out there to be the popular kid and right. then you get a tattoo and then something oh my god yeah right. he's a cool kid right and then now you're throwing yourself into work. Now you're going through toxic relationships. Now you're not healing from things. Right. But society doesn't really tell you, whoa, hold on. Society kind of tells you, buck up. You yeah, know? right, exactly. And I think that's part of it, too, is because then you, you 
adulthood, like to joke, is just like you're kind of just unpacking all of the trauma from the right. earlier part of exactly. your life. And some of it you find, some of it you figure out in healthy ways, and some of it you figure out, you're like, oh, you're like, oh, you're like, oh, yeah, I don't yeah. think some people ever figure it out. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and even things in whatever, whether it's relationship or it's work, it's exactly like that where you're like, someone might say something and you're like, automatically, you're like, why do I feel like this? Why do I feel like attacked? Or why do I feel tense? And like, there's something that I must have dealt with in the past that has triggered me to feel like, you know, yeah. this level of tension. Um, Which is what I've always thought to myself when I've, um, whenever I've felt something negative, like towards someone or some situation, I've always stepped back and gone, okay, hang on. Why am I, why am I feeling upset this at yeah. this? And there has to be a reason I'm upset at this because this person's not doing it directly to me on purpose you know, why is what they said triggered me? It's right. not like they meant it in malice. Yeah. You know? And if they meant it in malice, it's okay. Fine. I understand now. You get why these I'm hands upset. for yeah. free. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Free smoke. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. It, and I, 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 it's yeah. I would say that, I mean, man, maybe that's not a, the best way to kind of like summarize it all, but uh, it would, it, I think it is coming to that self-awareness. And I think whether it is running or I don't think there is one answer. I would say whether it is running or writing or fuck, drink a gallon of water a day and that'll already probably make you feel better. A hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think, I think people literally do not give water. Yeah. Honestly, shout out, go quick shout out water. Like wine, <laughs> wine is cool, but like quick shout out water. I drink a gallon a day. That shit's fire. Do you actually drink a gallon? I drink a gallon of water a day. Yeah. Like you actually, like you, you make it a purposeful I, I, thing. I, I do as much as I can to try and drink a gallon of water a day. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And this started when I was started running because I was just fucking dead. Dehydrated. Yeah. yeah. But then also it's just like it really does. I don't know. Not to get heavy on the topic of water, but like, yeah, you're a fucking human being. You got a lot of water in you. You need water, yeah. you know? And also a big thing, too, is I've slowed down on my drinking a lot. Okay. Yeah. Um, that and that has helped me not because I don't think I not because I have an issue with drinking. But I think also you, because your work life balance situation and the meetings that you're going to and the projects that you've got going on. Right. I feel like being slightly more alert and capable of waking up in the morning and getting to your work situation yeah, is pretty key right now. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And especially with like Grace and everyone else in your life, your family and so on. I feel like there are much more morning people than when you were like an industry person and night is a thing and mornings like your version of night. Yeah. Know? No, I'm up at like fucking 8 a.m. every day, dude. It's great. Oh, wow. That's fucking awesome. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I, I, I've, I've, I like being a morning person when That's I can, yeah. um, because I mean, yeah, I you get more hours in the day. Yeah, and I and I, I, I still will, can't do that 4 a.m. thing that a lot of people. No, 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 yeah. fuck that. I'm not like Terry Crews or some shit. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> no, I, I, I like, I like, I like waking up early and feeling like I can be kind of productive where I go and I do fucking Muay Thai or something first thing in the morning that I'm like, yo, I feel amped and I feel ready to fucking like conquer. I've seen you yeah, doing this Muay Thai thing. Yeah, dude. I, so I, I, so and, I, and then the jiu-jitsu. So yeah, so I just started jiu-jitsu. I started I'm, Brazilian uh, jiu-jitsu. I've been doing Muay Thai for a month Brazilian now. Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Yeah. Yo. I've been fucking running. Um, I just like, I... Uh, How is this? But okay, so on the topic of the whole, coming back to the mental health thing, yeah. doing these things, has it really helped you? It has. It really, I mean, I honestly, so I did martial arts as a kid. I did Taekwondo, but like, okay, same. Every, yeah, Shout everyone, out every, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Shout out Taekwondo. Everyone, everyone kind of does that shit though. You know, you, you grow up with it. It's cool. Like we're from the karate kid generation. So like yeah. everyone wants to do that. I mean, I, I couldn't, I, w I wasn't, well, we, we couldn't do black belt in Singapore because when you get black belt in Singapore, you have to register with the police. Yeah. Oh yeah. I guess you become like a, you become a you're a lethal walking weapon. weapon. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. you, so if you, if you attack someone and you basically break their leg or you, kill them yeah you know in the worst case like let's hope you don't yeah but if you did right for whatever reason 
Yeah, you're fucking. Yeah, you're you're, you're, fucked. you're you're on the hook because you were capable of holding yourself back. And, and not, you yeah. And I was yeah. like, I'm like, oh goddamn. So yeah, I got right. to like brown belt, and I was like, all right, I'm. It's out. like I don't want to be a fucking human shotgun. <laughs> yeah. <or> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, but I like, man. There is, and it came back to that idea of pushing through walls, and that was the first thing that I found when I was training for my first half marathon. How How was that? It was awesome, dude. I did. I did it in two weeks of training. I don't recommend you, you, you it. Did two weeks of training. I did. So I finished Harvest, and I wasn't running all of Harvest. Wait, which Harvest was this? Oh, 2018. Okay. First Oregon, and I ran for like two weeks every day, nonstop. I just got a pair of new running pair of running shoes, and my friend. This is right on Thanksgiving. My homie was like, she was like, "Yo, I signed up for the race." Running outside, I assume. Yeah, yeah, street running, and uh, she was like, "I don't want to do it though. Like, do you want to take my spot?" I was like, "Sure." I was like, "Fuck yeah, I can do this half marathon, no problem." First half, half marathon's marathon. uh, five kilometers. Oh, sorry, ten, huh? No, 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 no. Half marathon is. Uh, sorry to everyone, I have absolutely no. No, no. So a half marathon is twelve miles. Miles. So it's twenty. A full marathon is twenty-four miles. Yeah. No, twenty-six point two. Jesus. So a half marathon is about twenty-two something kilometers. Okay. Yeah. Whoa. So I did that on yeah two weeks. I was hoping and it, it was, was like only ten kilometers. Yeah. No, <laughs> it, it was pure, and I finished it in two hours. Oh, it was fuck. I honestly could not even believe it. I think that was a huge thing for Wait, me to be able to be like, like full, full, full marathons like forty four. Yeah, it's fucking crazy. So I was like, holy shit, dude. I was like, I did not expect myself to be able to do it, but it was it was really this just like test of willpower. And like That's once insane, I though. did that, I was like, I was like, I can fucking do this. And then of course I got to Muay Thai. The first time at Muay Thai, I threw up three times. Are you serious? Three times. Like I they like I was doing kicks and you shit. You do it for like an hour, right? Yeah. And then and then I, I like I got finished that first day and I just went to the bathroom. I just like projectile vomited just all the water i had drank for the past hour just fucking all over the so bathroom why you don't do it before right like, uh, yeah exactly well, rookie, i didn't know but I was, I, was like, I was like fuck yeah dude i was like i got this like i, I can kick people and shit and uh but it's also funny because you know was, the muay thai guys they're like they're like when i showed up they're like yo you, you look like you do muay thai right i was like no 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 i was like i've never done muay thai they're like you do muay thai and i was like no i like i look like a skinny asian guy with a lot of tattoos but it doesn't mean i've done yeah. muay thai because that's a typical look <laughs> yeah and but the funny thing is like I was talking to the homie, and I was like, I was like, yeah, they're pretty fucking hard on me. Like, I feel like they go harder on me than a lot of my homies. And they were like, and the guy was like, you know why? And I was like, why? He's like, because you look like a tough guy. And I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, I'm fucking marshmallow fluff, bro. I'm emotional as shit and all this stuff. Yeah. And they're like, no, but you look like a tough guy. And he's like, and the theory behind it is like, you know, if you're at a bar and like, you always have got some drunk asshole and some guy at a bar wants to fight, he always wants to fight the toughest looking motherfucker in the room. So he's like, they want to make sure you're well prepared. I was like, that's, that's, shout out to them. I was like, definitely not the way to go. Though. Yeah, I was like, what? I was like, what the fuck? I was like, yeah, I don't want to have to fight people up, but I guess, like, I was like, yo, I was like, I don't, yeah, I was like, man, it's like, as long as I can be the baddest motherfucker in the room. But no, for me also, it's just like, it's a test to myself because I know that I can push myself, but I won't push myself as hard as someone. I feel someone. like you're doing the very David Goggins. Have you, you know, have you heard I know of him, but everyone's been telling me to read, to. listen. Yeah, yeah. it's fucking great. It's, it's insane. So a lot of what he says is don't let life control your mind. Yeah. And so what he means is like, and obviously not that you need a definition of it, but some of the listeners may, but it's essentially, you go through a relationship, for example, and it's hot, it's hectic, it's toxic, you break up. Now that's all that consumes your brain. And so the whole entire purpose of what David Goggins is saying is like, no matter what you go through in life and no matter what happens to you, you need to take control of your own mind. You can't let someone else control it. You can't let your ex-girlfriend flood your mind with thoughts of like, oh my God, her with some other guy or something like that and right. just control you because you need to control yourself. Um, it's kind of like what you were saying, right? Like when you like 
breaking a cork whilst you're like screwing your girlfriend. Right. right. That, those kind of things where it's like, that's what's in your head. And that's been stuck in your head. It's very much like, don't let that moment or that whole inter- bit of circumstance, which was completely an accident, probably won't happen again, probably will. But that shouldn't be what actually dominates your mind. Yeah. You should dominate your own mind. You should create, it's like your realm. It's your yeah. mind palace, you yeah. know? And that's that's David Goggins theory. Like he, he he did something similar to you, except it was way more crazy. I think he did a freaking um marathon instead. So marathon or he did like he does like almost two, three, maybe a whole week of marathons back to back. Like he's insane. Like he, he was in, in the book that he, he was uh and even on the podcast, he was on Joe's Brogan's podcast, he was on um I think he was on Tim Ferriss's podcast and uh but basically he did SEAL training. And partway through SEAL training, he ended up with, like, a busted ankle. And he didn't just cut loose there. So, before SEAL training, he wasn't allowed in the SEALs. He was fat. He was, like, my size. Yeah. Oh, I remember. Okay, this is what, yeah, my yeah. homie was talking about. Yeah, yeah, And in three months, he cut it. And the way he did it was he was, like, having, like, a banana or something a day. That was it. And then he was just, like, cycling, like, hectic. And then he really, he's, he was, the way he also tightened his muscles was he was doing, uh, low weights, but doing like sixty to seventy reps, right? Holy shit! Yeah, so he was really doing toning plus right, right, uh, biking and everything and building up his endurance. Yeah. So then they allowed him back in the seals, right? He had three months to get back, like allowed be allowed in. Then when he broke his at like he busted, his, sprained his ankle or whatever. No matter what happened, all he did was just tape it up, and just keep going. Damn. And like that was it. That's all he did. He didn't care. Like they were lifting logs, they were doing the thing. And even like when you do seal training, they put you in the water and he's like, he sinks. He's like a log. Like he literally will just drop. Right. And um, he just had to go, go through it. And yeah. in it, like the, even when the doctor's story is like sprained ankle and it healed itself. It was like, he was just like, no matter what happens. I'm fucking doing it. Yeah. Even uh, he just, he came, I think he came first place. He just did a crazy, there's some Oregon run that they have that it's like 240 miles or something. Like oh that. yeah. Like the super, super marathon. Yeah. Kind of like shit. yeah. it's crazy. It's like, it's like eight days. And I just saw, he just finished it like last week. Right. Fuck. But he fit halfway through the situation. Like I think it was like on the third day he sprained his ankle and they just taped it up and he just kept going, kept going and yeah. he still came first. That's wild. I yeah. was like, I was like, God dang! Like That's he got, he he literally finished, and he dropped to the floor and did a hundred push-ups. And I was like, and some a, fucking people, man. <laughs> yo, if you see his feet, it's messed up. But that's his thing, right? It's like you don't let your, you know, don't let like life ca- capture you. Yeah. Which yeah. you know, it's it's one of those things I say to a lot of people, like with mental health and everything. Like a lot of, I, especially here, and I, I feel like in Asia, a lot of people keep a lot of stuff to themselves for sure and when they start speaking about it and you start breaking it down to them i feel like i'm a therapist to a lot of people (laughs) but when you start breaking it down to them then they start going oh okay like this is actually dealable like i can actually this is a good way to look at it you know you know yeah i think so much i mean even just with my family stuff too and like my family's super progressive super open all this stuff but even then like and especially with asian culture we're so in kind of inculcated to be like yo push it down don't you don't want to say something that might upset the family or my like yeah. you know, whatever all these things I think and even in Korean there's a term for it called like Han which is like generational trauma oh interesting okay which is really interesting because you think about that what what gets passed down and the things and what doesn't get passed down because it doesn't get shared and that also kind of creates like yeah but it's it's exactly that as well it's it, it's giving yourself and the people around you the tools to feel like they can 
they can address things a little bit better. 100%. And also not feeling like you're a prisoner of, it's not your mind, but your thoughts that yeah. are, yeah, you're, you're perpetuating that, that scenario. That it's a lot cycle. of breaking everything down, yeah. recreating. It's a lot of like, like you said, even with the Psalm world, like stop taking every notion that you have and making it just, that's what it is. You right. know? And I think that's the thing. Like, uh, but that's, so that, that brings me back to this whole curiosity natural wine right so i was actually gonna say i only got a little bit left so maybe we can finish yeah. on the the yeah, what i'm doing now wine. in the natural yeah. wine so real quick just to follow it up um so now my work and as you kind of if you listen to this whole thing is um yeah i work in natural wine and for those that are essentially just explaining natural wine at least for yeah. me because you'll hear it from a hundred thousand different people and you'll get different definitions um the biggest thing for me is is less again and it comes back to even conventional wine don't try to fucking label everything too much if you try to fit everything into small compartmentalized boxes you're gonna find that not everything fits not all orange wine is the same not all merlot is the same not all wine from germany is whatever the same and you can create connections but i would say never let the idea or the word natural just purely define your thought process for it so for me the wines that i enjoy well, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what I think natural wine is and what most of the world thinks it is. Natural wine, as for most people, is wine that is made in the vineyard with no intervention, organic or biodynamic, but it doesn't need to be certified. All that means is there's no herbicides or pesticides added. In the cellar, essentially, once the winemaker gets their hands on the grapes, it's just adding as little as possible. Like I said with a conventional— Do they add anything? Some people add nothing, which some people view natural winemaking to only be if you add nothing. Okay. I don't think that's the case. Um, personally, I think it's a bit different because I don't think that we can be so dogmatic about something that is indeed an art, you know, a beautiful passion representation. It's still a fucking business. Yeah. It's still farmers. People need to feed their families. And if, and if someone, so a big point of contention is sulfur, adding sulfur to a wine to make it last longer. Now, some natural winemakers add a little bit of sulfur, and I think that's still natural wine because the wine is still very alive. Yeah. It's just a little bit of sulfur to make sure that. Y- is there a point? Is there a point where you then say that it becomes conventional wine with the sulfur? Yeah, once it's too much. Once there's a shitload of sulfur to the point where it kills the wine. Because if you put too much sulfur, it just kills the living quality of the wine. Okay, interesting. Uh, but only if you have a, if you have a little bit, then it can still keep the wine super alive okay. and just keeps it a little bit safer. Um, but and so the way I say it is. I will never criticize a winemaker for using sulfur to protect their wine and their philosophy of winemaking. But at the same time, I will always champion the winemakers that decide to make wine without it. Because if you can make it without it and you want to make it without it and you're bold as fuck and you're brave and you're creating something beautiful, then fucking awesome. If you are also brave, beautiful, creating something awesome, but at the same time, your philosophy, I don't think you can rule it out. So the biggest things for natural wine and this is the thing that everyone will agree on, whether the sulfur or not, is you can't add any yeast. The yeast has to be from nature. Okay. No lab-grade yeast. It's what's called the native yeast, which yeah. is already kind of living in the vineyard, growing on the fruit, everything you have there. And that's actually the best way to get terroir because the yeast is only from that vineyard. So you're tasting the place Naturalness, that yeah. ferments it. And then you're not adding. You're adding as little as possible to it. Okay, so one, one real quick question I think that everyone will be very curious with. How do you choose a good natural wine bottle? Because I've had friends that have said that they've gone to natural wine places or places that say they've sold natural wine, tasted it, and absolutely hated it. Fucking hated it. 
So this is the best way because natural wine is hard because it's not, you don't have the sense of typicity. You can't look at a bottle and be like, Syrah, I know that this is Syrah. I'm getting Syrah. I'm going to drink Syrah. All right. This is the thing. So this is. And also, is how do you, and the other, the other part to this, the second part to this would be, how do you know what the person's giving you will be good? Right. So this is the thing is now it becomes a personal interaction. Whereas the people that working in natural wine, I think actually have more at stake and there's more, there's more pressure. I, I will say that I'm putting more pressure on people that work in natural wine because we do have to prove ourselves more. We do have to make sure that people are enjoying their experiences and you're not just serving some like fucking weird well, shit. So, the, that so then that, but that just creates the issue of like, for example, if I ask you, hey, you know, Ultra for a bottle, right? I can't know if what you're going to serve me ahead of time is what I'm going to enjoy unless you have the personal interaction. Right. So, so this uh, is like, for example, my friends in Singapore, right? With them, they, for example, will go somewhere and they'll ask. And the interaction is very much the first moment right. that they met, right? It's not like a relationship that's been existing, right? Yeah. So then how do you know that that person's going to give you the best of the best? For sure. And so this is, so this is the first thing is my recommendation for natural wine. Go to a wine shop specifically. Uh, if if you're you gonna, go, yeah, okay. yeah, if you're going to go to a wine, buy, go to a wine shop because you have someone there that's actually going to talk to you about wine. If you go to a grocery store, the shop boy who's stocking the fucking right, stuff yeah. is not going to go to shit. Not supposed to. Um, but if you go to a wine bar or something. But also part of the, the, the onus, I think, is also... It, it's and you shouldn't know everything about wine. Like if you want to drink it, you shouldn't. You know that's why we have so many yeah, of of people to help you. But also, I think you should be descriptive. People are like, "What's the best way to find the wine that I like?" I'm like, "Tell them exactly what you like." And if you think that you're explaining too much to them, explain more. Yeah. I remember I'd go to the bar, I went to a bar one time and I was like, "Hey man, can I get like um?" I was like, "I want that gin. I want a dry martini. Can you just do like a like." two olives and like a quarter ounce of vermouth. And he's like, that's really specific. And I was like, oh no, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to be so picky. He goes, no, that I know exactly what you want and I know you'll be happy. That's great. Yeah. And I was like, oh, and obviously wine is not a cocktail. I'm not putting of everything course, together. Yeah, yeah. But if I, if someone tells me, oh, I like something full bodied and red. Okay. That's a hundred fucking different things. You know, I, you know, I, I like something that's full bodied and red. I tried this wine when I was in, in Tuscany that I really liked but I found more that I really, really enjoyed the flavors when I was in this part of France because it tasted a little bit like this, this, this. And that already in my head, I'm like, I fucking got you. Even if it's not the exact thing, I know where you're coming from and I can meet you at a level. Yeah. So I think it, it, it's coming down to the same level to be able to, I think that's what's going to create a better community with natural wine. Um, but it's also the fact that, you know, you shouldn't, as a consumer, you shouldn't feel like you have to know everything. But also I think it's important that you should feel like Help me help you is a big thing. I want. I'm here. I'm here as the psalm to help you, and I want to do that in the best way possible. And if that's made even better by the fact that you can just describe even the small details to yeah. me, I think that's a great way to do it too. Okay, interesting, yeah. awesome. Thanks um, so much, man. Yeah. Well, I was gonna say, like, do you mind my plug my plug my yo, plugables? Yo, I want. I want you to plug plug. Yeah. Um. So that's how I wanted to end yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> thank. Yeah. Thank you guys for listening really quick. So. Um. Yeah. Just to reiterate, my name is Otra. Um. I've been working in the restaurant industry now for about a decade. Um. A little bit of everything. Most of my experience now has been in wine, specifically natural wine, for the past four years, both in, in the vineyard, in the cellar, in restaurants, in import, in. I think kind of every, pretty much every goddamn possible avenue I've been able to get my hands on. Um, I am currently now no longer working in restaurants. Um, I'm going to be, I have a lot of upcoming projects, which are great. Um, most of them are going to be focused around wine education and specifically around centering 
non-traditional voices in wine, specifically trying to center non-traditional pairings and discussions about wine that wouldn't be had in traditional, what we could call wine academia. Um, my, you can always find me on Instagram. My Instagram is at A-M-A-R-O-T-T-A-R-A, Amarotra, at, uh, oh, that's not an email. It's a fucking Instagram. Yeah, that's all you need to know. Um, you can always DM me on there. And I also do wine shows sometime that started in the middle of quarantine about trying to interview winemakers that I love, create a little bit more kind of outreach, and let people know about the wines that I was drinking. Um, and, yeah. I also have pairings that you t- talk about. And yeah. Stuff and, and, and I do pair, I do wine shows with pairings and stuff too. And I'm always, and I, and you know, I always like to say like, Oh, you know, like obviously like, you know, I, I like being paid for my work, but also at the same time, you know, if people have questions. There's a lot of free knowledge on your page. Yeah. Yeah. yeah come on by, you know, and, and I'm, and I'm not going to give you an essay about stuff necessarily, but if you have questions about a wine or you need a recommendation, I, I guess, I guess I'll end on a good little story. This is how dedicated I am. I was, uh, I was at a music festival, um, two years ago, um, well, let's just say it. I was high out of my fucking mind, and my buddy FaceTimes me, and we're in the middle of this hillside in this fucking auditorium, this huge amphitheater, and my buddy, he's like, FaceTime me. I'm like, oh my God, like, what's going on? You know, of course, I'm like tripping my balls off. I'm like, I'm like, yo, are you okay? Like, what's going on, bro? And he goes, oh, dude, me and my girl, we're about to, we're about to make dinner. Like, I just need a wine recommendation. And I was like, all right, tell me where you're at and what are you making for dinner? And I was like, I'm just going to try and focus. Like, I can see three of you on the screen, but like, I, I got you, bro. And he's like, are you fucked up right now? I was like, yes. And he's like, right, I got you, bro. So that's, that's, yeah, I'm not going to guarantee that if you call me in the middle of a psychedelic trip that I will respond, but I'll try. So, awesome. <laughs> cheers, my dude. Thank <laughs> Thanks you, for having thank me you. on. Cheers.